0: Hi, this is Sean Byrne, writer-director of The Devil's Candy, and this is Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies.
1: Podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies. And this is episode 180. This episode of Horror Movie Podcast is brought to you by our Movie Podcast Network patrons and Stitcher Premium. We will tell you more about this great new platform later in the show. To get a free month of Stitcher Premium for 30 days, go to StitcherPremium.com and use promo code HMP. On Horror Movie Podcast, you get in-depth horror movie reviews for classics and new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. This is Gilman Joel Robertson, and my co-hosts are Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolf, man, Josh, this meeting of the Losers Club has officially begun. So here we are, gentlemen. The day has come another frankensteinian episode we are talking specifically about uh, several major releases a couple that have been well at least one that's been out uh, for a little while and one that just came out i was gonna ask you did you want to tease out at all about or do you want to wait to the end of the episode uh, about what we've cut coming up in october i know technically this is not the there'll be another episode that comes out this month but i didn't know if you wanted to start teasing that out or not
2: we have some fun things planned for the month of october We'll tell you more about them as we get closer. But one thing I do want to absolutely tease is that we are looking for your campfire tales. So you guys have heard on the show before, oftentimes we'll include some kind of personal creepy story as a campfire tale segment. And we've done that with ourselves as well as occasional guests. Um, The one that we always bring up is Kayoni Bothorpe's shark attack story. It was one of my favorites and, I love the bear attack story I told um, as well. We've had a few of those. I just recently re-listened to Dave. I don't know if you remember this, but um, someone had asked me if I believed in possession. I said, "Well, I did once have this experience in Holland where this guy followed us back to our apartment building." Do you remember that story, Dave?
3: Josh, I have not been able to get that story out of my head. <laughs> I, re- I, I think remember about hearing that it, yeah. constantly, and and it <laughs> freaks me out. So we've had
2: some fun Campfire Tales here on the show, and one thing I wanted to do was encourage our listeners to share their Campfire Tales. We will play at least one on each of our October episodes. So what I'm hoping people will do is submit uh, Halloween kind of theme stories. They don't have to be at Halloween, but I think it, it helps a little bit. It'll help your chances of being selected. The only real rule is that it needs to be true. And it needs to have happened to you. I don't want you people making up stories or telling their friends' stories. We want to hear these first-person accounts. If you can keep them to under three minutes, we'd appreciate that as well. But I think this will be a fun opportunity to get more listener stories on the show. And it's just one of my favorite things to do and sit around a campfire and tell spooky stories. So it's it's exciting for, for me for the month of October anyway.
1: And while I can back you up that the story should be true, I I do kind of love the idea of one day having people submit friend of a friend stories, you know, urban legend type stuff. (laughs) Sure. Yeah.
2: Well, the best version would be if there's an urban legend that leads to a personal experience. Ah, To me, that's that'd be
1: sweet. That would be actually that'd be pretty cool. I I would dig that. But
2: It it doesn't have to be anything grand. It could be even something slightly creepy. It doesn't have to be, you know, a Hollywood movie worthy spooky story just something creepy that
1: happened to you in your life yeah
2: we love hearing those stories something
1: that sets the mood is what we're looking well
2: for. we did like that mini campfire tale a few episodes ago when you're talking about walking through the park with your sons and an alligator jumped out and almost bit you i thought that that's that's fine you know i mean they could be longer than that but that's a good example of it. it doesn't have to be some big you
3: know convoluted now if you want to go back to that alligator joel to sort of expand on the story for October. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. Sure. I'm sure I could. It's a sequel. You hunt the uh, alligator? <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. I, yeah, I try to, try to jump on it, wrestle it, wrestle it, as they would say around these parts. Now I'll pass. So
2: if you want to email us a recorded file of your experience, send it to horrormoviecast at gmail.com or you can leave a voicemail at joel's retro movie geek Hotline four eight four five seven seven three
1: eight seven six uh and i believe we've had at least one message sent to that number i believe chris excess sent a campfire tale already too. oh nice yes so uh so we got that one which is awesome and i, I probably should update that voice recording oh, to, to include the fact that uh and if you're calling for hmp i'll uh, i will do that post taste
2: oh we don't want to upset the retro movie geeks um also <laughs> i'll just say i would love it If we could receive all of those entries by October 1st, Mm -hmm. uh, that will just give us more time to edit them into the October episodes. And everyone whose story we pick will be eligible for some fun giveaways, some Halloween treats, as it were, movies, music, stickers, T-shirts, and more.
1: Awesome. One other thing, if you don't mind me making the announcement, Josh, I think uh, I told you about this a while back, but uh, here in the Tampa area, Uh, At the end of October, very beginning of November, uh, Spooky Empire is having a horror convention. And uh, I'm going because Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi and Clyde Barker are going to be there. Oh, my. Uh, As well as like, uh, I I tell you right now, (laughs) I have concluded I could easily lose one to two grand at one of these things, which is probably why my wife and I have to have like a long talk before I go, because not only are they going to be there, uh, Ted Raimi is going to be there. CJ Graham, my personal favorite, Jason's going to be there. Ken Foray is going to be there. Tony Todd is going to be there, for love of God. Joe Bob Briggs is going to be there. Wow. And yeah, I know Danielle Harris. I I'm doing this off memory at the moment. Yeah. Like the list goes on and I'm like, oh, dear God. So I have set some parameters for myself of what I'm going to do and who I'm going to meet, but I will be there. So if you happen to be in the Tampa area, I'm going on Sunday, November 3rd, I believe I will be the bald guy in a horror movie podcast, either a t-shirt or a long sleeve tee. I haven't decided yet which one I'm getting josh but I'll, I'll figure that out uh okay yes but uh, i will be in the but you'll I'll have the green button horror movie podcast so i'll be the, the the goofy looking bald guy uh so uh, so look for me there but uh i just want to let people know i know i know armored foe when he says bald he means all the way bald oh like yeah Yule brenner ball yes like cue right. ball yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> no not even eyebrows nothing if you are going to be there you know please uh come come by say hi if you see me and uh, i'd love to hang out and chat it'd be awesome all right so that wraps up our housekeeping section of the show so let's go ahead and move on into our feature review for it chapter two for 27 years
0: i dreamt of you i've missed you we didn't stop it i missed you September 6th. You haven't changed anything yet. If it ever comes back, we'll come back too. Take it. It kills monsters. you <clears throat> believe it does. Let's
1: kill this clown. Hello. Chapter Two, Rated R.
2: Really quickly before we get going, why don't we both give our ratings for it nineteen ninety and it Chapter One two thousand seventeen? Because I actually was not on the episode where we reviewed those films, and even though I did later weigh in on it twenty seventeen, I've also never reviewed the nineteen ninety
1: miniseries on the show for me. And it's gonna. I have not seen the 1980 version in quite a while. It's been a few years, at least. Uh, for the first half, for me, it's like an 8.5 to a nine. Like it's it's. I love the first half. I prefer King's material in the 50s because that is such an. I think that is such a uh, important era in understanding uh, you know, how. He became the creator he became. And I feel like that that he infuses it with this twisted nostalgia that really works for me and always has, which honestly is one of my big, and when we get to talk about it, chapter one here in a second, is my, probably my biggest knock on that movie is I felt like they were just trying to ride the stranger things train. If I'm just being cynical about it, <laughs> they, that's why they moved it from the fifties to the eighties. Um, and they were trying to take it and I get it. I get why they did it. But for me personally, I prefer the fifties vibe. So I love the first half of that miniseries. Every time I watch the second half, I love the actors. I love John Ritter. I I, I like Harry Anderson. No, he's not nearly as remotely as good as Bill Hader as far as the character goes. But there's a lot of people in that that I really do enjoy a lot. So I like a lot of the elements and I have such a nostalgic feeling for it. So I'm probably about to rate it higher than it actually deserves to be rated. So for me, that second half would probably be like this one. In this, It'd be like a seven. I, I mean, but that's a lot of that's being driven by C&D, if I'm being honest. So the first half is an 8.5. The second half for me is seven. That's for the 1990 version.
2: Yeah, I really love the 1990 version. Grew up on it. I, For me, it's Tim Curry. He Absolutely. is the best part of that film. And he's the biggest issue I had going into... Chapter one, I just thought, you know, how can you beat Tim Curry? And I think that it's arguable that Bill Skarsgård at least equaled him, you know, and you know, it's apples to oranges, kind of like Heath Ledger to Jack Nicholson with the Joker or something like that, or Walking Phoenix. I see, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: I think that's probably even a better one, yeah.
2: <laughs> that's probably going to be the new uh, high bar pretty soon. But yeah, I, for me, that 1990 miniseries is... Comfort food, I don't think it's particularly well made in a lot of ways. I think there are some really high points, and I think there are a lot of kind of low point TV acting, TV cinematography kind of stuff, too. Special effects are really bad at some point. So, I mean, for me, I also would come in probably at a seven as well. But uh, for the whole thing, low.
1: for both parts.
2: Yeah, I would just overall, I would call it a seven. Okay. And didn't Tommy Lee Wallace
1: direct it? Yes he did. Okay, cool. He of Halloween 3 fame? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and Tim Curry like you said, that's hands down the, the main reason why. It, it it and I I do I do love it so much for his performance. Yeah,
2: it's the Stephen King world building and it's Tim Curry. I didn't really, you know, the other actors, I love John Ritter obviously, but like the other actors and I love all the actors, but um they don't they're not fantastic or anything. Uh, you know, I don't think their performances are groundbreaking or mind-blowing
1: for me yeah i would say it chapter one uh to jump over to that one real quick for uh, i reviewed it just i rewatched it rather a couple days before uh Wednesday, it chapter two i'm glad i did i would say for me that one it's a strong eight it's a definite strong eight um it is uh a buy again once the uh the super or whatever the heck comes out <laughs> and i appreciated it I think uh, for some reason a lot more because I think I went into it the first time with a level of baggage I think I, I didn't have quite of a chip on my shoulder but I was a little bit annoyed because as much as I am a fan of Stranger Things I definitely was in going into it with like a, of course you had to set it during the 80s because Stranger Things is huge right now Yeah, well, you had to do that uh, but and, and I think honestly re-watching it again there was still a couple of things in it that I do not buy in any way shape or form That in 1989, even 12, 13, whatever year old kids would have done, um, especially as it relates to a certain oath that they take and the way they take it. I was I remember that era and I was very much aware of what happens, you know, when blood mixes together. And I mean, I'm just as a kid, I remember being having this you fear. I mean, it was like nuclear war. There was like certain things in that time period you were constantly aware of. And terrified of at least I was, but I had a lot of anxiety. So there you go. Um, and I just thought like when they remade, it, I remember thinking, eh, I don't really know if I No, in 1958. Yes, I totally buy that. <laughs> but in 1989 eh. and, it, and to me, it also diluted some level of the in it there. There's this the 50s have this false innocence about like we perceive it because of the media and the way it's been portrayed. But that's what I love about King's work, right? It's, it shows, oh yeah, look at the facade. It's so innocent and leave it to Beaver. Oh, except there's this creepy, crawly death and destruction under the surface. And that is that juxtaposition. Again, setting something in the late eighties, it just, it loses something in it for me that way. So for me, like I said, it's an eight. I think it's a great movie in a lot of ways, uh, but it does have those few little atmospheric pieces that are that are missing for it to be even higher on my scale
2: yeah i pretty much could not disagree with everything you said more um <laughs> i don't think it at all was influenced by Stranger things yeah i think you know generally we were living at that time in the height of 80s nostalgia and we're moving over into 90s nostalgia and so setting in in 1989 you know there's some pandering going on there for sure Be it new kids on the block or uh, in nightmare on elm street you know whatever the thing is yeah it certainly is pandering to our generation who grew up at that time but i didn't you know i don't knock anything off the film for that i feel like it's a very natural time period to send it, set it in as an update it makes sense i think the fun fact that it's 27 years after the 1990 version that that film came out is perfect. And what it almost seems like you're obligated to do it at that point. Um, I feel like, you know, the timelines match up perfectly and I feel like that's just so much, that's an exciting way for me to do an update like that. I guess it's an exciting reason to even do it. Frankly, I feel like that's part of your pitch. Like, guess what? It's going to be 27 years after it, 1990 came out. Let's come out with, you know, it. let's bring Pennywise back. So for me that's a really fun element obviously the 80s nostalgia worked on me so maybe i'm just a sheep and you know they're playing you know like a fiddle but i i think that was all <laughs> perfect in terms of uh, its use i think my biggest demerits for the film come from the cgi that i just talked about with this film i just feel like it, there were a couple moments Uh, with Pennywise and a couple of moments of CGI that just were so upsetting to me when I saw it, because I thought this is so close to being a timeless film. Why would you blow it with something like this at the time? I came in with a nine out of 10. I think now um, I would come in at a 9.5. I think part two solved a few of my issues with part one, which is maybe not fair in rating them. But like for instance, the Adrian Mellon scene, I really missed that. In part one, I thought it was so sad that they didn't include Adrian Mellon and then for them to start out in chapter two with it, I just was like a sigh of relief almost like, okay, this is going to stay true to the heart of what this is about. I didn't have a problem with the oath thing like you did. I think I would have definitely taken part in something like that. And if we're talking about exchanging bodily fluids, it's at least a little more tasteful than the way King wrote uh, the oath into (laughs) the novel. So um, I feel like you know they're going to be exchanging bodily body fluids one way or the other. It might as well be uh, on, the, on the palm of the hand. So anyway, yeah, um, I came in at a nine originally. I'm going to bump that up to a 9.5. And I really love that 2017 film.
1: Okay, so it chapter two is a 2019 horror movie, as I believe everyone who's listening to this should know. Uh, I'm going to read the IMDb synopsis because, you know, it's a long one. The movie, I mean, not the synopsis. Twenty seven years after their first encounter with the terrifying Pennywise, the Losers Club have grown up and moved away until a devastating phone call brings them back. And yes, that does happen, (laughs) and a whole lot more, because this bad boy is almost three hours long. Um, So I don't know, I I would presume everyone here, all the hosts, and most of the people listening have grown up with the it from the 90s, the early 90s, the classic uh, Tim Curry as Pennywise. I don't know that I've ever gotten to say my piece on that one per se, and I don't know that I've ever, I know I haven't gotten to review it chapter one officially on the show and i'm not going to turn this into a review of it chapter one um i was always a massive fan of the first half of the 1990s version but even as uh i think it was in ninth grade when it came out the second half i liked elements of it but there was quite a bit of it that didn't work for me as i believe it didn't work for a lot of people this version this it chapter two so this is of course the, the to compare it to something to compare it to that half this on um, in my opinion worked way better you know you've got First off, I I just have to say, and and I don't know how you guys felt about this, the casting of adults to their kid counterparts was borderline uncanny for several of them. I mean, I I couldn't get over oh, how spot amazing. on. It was so good. I mean, it was, I mean, first off, just right off the bat, to me, the best one, James Ransone uh, as Eddie Kazbrack grown up. I mean... <laughs> he could be that kid's father i mean they they are it is shocking how good that and that guy i loved from uh, i don't know if you guys ever watched the wire but uh he was fantastic on that show um sinister oh yeah 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 that too um and uh and Jessica chastain is such a fantastic actress but i think that i i could see obviously obviously the hair color and everything else she she was a good Choice for Beverly Marsh, but it wasn't the physicality. Of it. And same with James McAvoy. And maybe it's because I know them so much from their other work. um I thought James McAvoy was pretty spot on. He actually. was pretty good. Yeah, he was pretty. I good. mean, I thought I I saw the resembles and I think
2: actually this is a funny conversation because you know online you see all of this discussion about the film, and everyone says. Now, these were really close approximations of that original cast, but everyone has their pick for who they think is the closest representation. So you'll you'll see people saying, well, especially Ben or especially Bill or especially. So I always think that's funny. I do want to mention the young actors who played Richie and Beverly. They were asked in interviews. Uh, When the first film came out, who they would like to play them in part two. And both of them said the actors who ended up playing them. In the case of Jessica Chastain, she already had a previous relationship with the director and producer. She had appeared in his first film, Mama. So I think that is probably how that came to be. But Bill Hader has told the story of basically Finn Wolfhard mentioning him as his ideal casting for Richie and how that directly led to him getting the role and how that kind of freaked him out. Like, who is this kid? This is the most powerful child in Hollywood. (laughs) He said that he was told about it, you know, like, Oh, look, this kid thinks he'd be a perfect choice to play when he grows up. He's like, Oh, that's cute. And he said about a week later, his agent called and said, you have a meeting at Warner brothers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) for this role he's like what yeah yeah (laughs) and and, and i think bill hader i don't know that the physically i I, you know i mean he looked i mean there's a similarity but uh, the personality and just uh, you know sort of the grown-up version of richie was spot on. I mean the and and honestly, the one that really jumped out at me, besides obviously James Ransom, which I just it was border it bordered on creepy to me. Uh, and Andy being too the uh, stand the Euros that was really great. Uh, but it really was really uncanny. It really was. It really was. But Ben Hanscom, because you go from you know this kind of you know the, the 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 kid and he's uh, you know obviously overweight and you know but he, it was in the eyes, like the facial features of the adult version. To mm-hmm. me, were really good. I mean, it was like just an, it was like in the eyes, and that would be the thing, right? You'd see this person you knew as a kid, and you'd see him as an adult, and they look completely different. Yet you could just see some, you can see it in there, right? You could just see that. Oh yeah, there it is. It's, it's in the eyes. So that all jumped out at me. But I would say, out of the whole cast, I think they all did a fantastic job. I mean, this is one thing you have to say about this movie: is the acting is fantastic. But Bill Hader, in my opinion, stole the show. Like he, he was. He was great. I I just... And and I don't want to give anything away, but there's just so many moments in this movie where he did things and went places, so I was really impressed by that. Mike, I liked so much better in this movie. Now, I think the actor... In, in the first film, it's perfectly fine. But I just don't didn't feel like they gave him as much to do. Whereas they didn't in, give him anything to do. Yeah, and really. I think Adult Mike carries yes. most of the exposition. A, a lot in of this movie, yes. They made up for that yeah. quite a bit. Quite a bit in this one. Yeah. Is he the the uh, Old Spice guy? That's correct. Yeah. I can't believe that. Like, I don't mean to be like poo pooing his work as the Old Spice guy because he was. And I'm not saying that the Old Spice <laughs> guy couldn't turn out to be a great actor because it's a very funny character he played. I think it's fair to say that. Just all of the casting was good in the film.
2: So, you know,
1: again, I think everyone's going to have their pick. Yes. Uh, Now, I'm going to ask you guys something point blank at this point in your life. Now, do you find it scary? And by it, I mean this movie specifically, but the whole like Pennywise and all that. Do you find it? Because like I know when I was a kid, it scared the crap out of me. But how do you feel about this version and just sort of like this scenario and everything else?
2: I find the concept about as scary as I can find something. Okay. To be honest, I, I think in execution, it's never quite lived up to the terror of the idea for me. Mm-hmm. Like going back to chapter one from 2017, the moments for me that were the absolute scariest were the moments like when it's behind the Nibel house. And Eddie's running through the backyard and he turns around and Pennywise is standing there with a big bundle of balloons in front of his face. Yeah. And he just slowly lifts the balloons up and then slowly smiles. Mm -hmm. That to me is a thousand times scarier than his jaw opening up to eat a child. Like it's just Mm -hmm. the, what goes unsaid I think is scarier in characters like this sometimes. But I think the, instinct tends to be it was certainly so with tim curry and eventually i think so with bill scars they want to show off what they can do and you know he is a clown character so it makes sense that he kind of goes overboard a lot and i think the more and more we see of this character just like the shark and jaws the less scary he is to me Mm -hmm. and so um i guess that would be my take on i really really like the world that it inhabits i think that the reason that this world is so scary to me is that it deals with children. And I my favorite types of movies, I've said this on the show a million times, are those where something magical is happening in an all-American suburb. Because that's where I grew up. And so whether it's E.T. or Goonies, uh, on, the, on the more magical side or something really scary, like The Lost Boys or It, those are the films that really have a big impact on me. It's my own personal experience, you know? And so it's a lot easier to touch me or scare me when I'm already Mm -hmm. so invested Mm -hmm. in the world, I guess. And so um, I've heard a lot of people say that this film isn't scary. I don't think that's true. I think there are some really scary scenes. Uh, You know, I think the scene where Beverly goes home to see her father turns out to be an extremely scary scene. And again, it's the uncanny nature of it, the unpredictability, what goes unsaid that makes that scene so scary. And I think these films for me work the less overt they are.
1: Yes. I guess. 100% agree with you. 100%. And I felt conflicted to some degree about this movie because I liked it. I did like it. Not as much as I liked the original. And I hadn't watched the original since it came out. I, 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 it, so much time had passed. And once I knew this was coming, I was like, you know, what? I'm going to wait to just a couple of days before this comes out, And then I'm going to watch uh, it. Chapter one and go pretty much right into this new one. And I did that. And I think it helped just as a refresher. And I did like it. Chapter one when I first saw it. Uh, but I didn't like it I think as much as some people did so when I saw it again the second time I actually liked it more hmm. even though it affected me less like with like the the right. beginning of the movie in chapter one without giving anything away for those who haven't seen it yet uh, in the theater that part just messed me up because that was a part in the book when I tried to read it when I was in eighth grade I'll never forget grandparents house in Florida have it in front of me storm outside nighttime and I get all the way through the part with Georgie, and I was done. I was like, can't do it. Nope, (laughs) I couldn't. I couldn't. And because in book form, it's even more just in your head. And, you know, watching the movie again and everything, it didn't affect me as much. And one thing I noticed going into this one, and I don't know if it's, because I think it's a big piece of what you said, which is those little moments, the when Pennywise just stares and like the one eye starts drifting which i guess is something scars can could actually do yes and he just drools and it's just something so disturbing about that and just there's moments like that that i find so much more effective than the like you said the mouth opening up or the or the the sudden jerky fast movements at the camera and and yeah which i really dislike but and none of
2: that works something the director perfected i guess in mama his (laughs) yeah and i see mama
1: yeah i saw mama yeah but it's, I just don't care for that aesthetic. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And I guess the thing was, is that I thought about, and I don't know, and I'm not, I don't want to turn it into a whole like practical versus CGI because this isn't an effects thing. It's just, I think what you said, it's showing too much of the shark. I feel like not so much that I'm bothered of seeing Pennywise as Pennywise. It's when I see all of sort of the behind the curtain more and more and more. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't have an effect on me. And I don't know, is it just because I'm getting older and I just know that killer, you know, supernatural potentially or otherworldly clowns don't exist. And so it just doesn't affect me. And the only thing that really does affect me is the conceptual idea of, you know, kids and and the harm coming to them and, and all this kind of thing. But I think the other issue I had with the movie overall is the level of urgency isn't as severe because as children, they're stuck And what are they going to do? Hop on their BMXs and, you know, pedal out of town? No, they can't do that. As adults, and we see that with one in in particular, you know, they have the option technically. I mean, I understand that they tried to, they built in a certain uh, rule that seemed to prevent that. But even then it was still sort of nebulous and hypothetical. It wasn't like, I mean, proven other than one situation that happened. And I mean, you know, you're kind of jumping to conclusions there. I mean, one could assume you would just, just take everything at face value when you knew there was a killer clown on the loose, but I digress, but they could jump in a car. <laughs> they could, they could leave the town. They could, they had options. I, so I think because of that and, and because of some of the situations where, uh, and I'm trying to say, how, and when we get in the spoiler section much later on in the episode, we can go into this in more detail, but one character is dealing with a young person and the relationship is is not really there. There's there's no it's not like it's it's somebody that belongs in their direct life. So the things that happen while disturbing, it, it's not it just didn't affect me. Like had that been there, you know, there are somebody directly connected to them, if that makes sense. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think there's so much that you said that I could respond to. I agree with you and I disagree with you with regard to childhood versus adulthood. I think that's definitely why the film feels less scary. You know, I think just the child in peril element is, uh, you know, they feel much more vulnerable than these adult characters do. Like you say, I think it's though a very lovely story. And I think that they choose to stay in this film based on, their friendships and based on what they feel is their duty to the world, essentially, uh, if not their, their town and their childhood selves. And so I feel like um, it's a very nice story that Stephen King created. I think as a film, it's hard to do. And I think that this one is slightly more successful than the 1990 version, but I think it suffers from all the same ailments as the 1990 version. And I don't necessarily blame that on the filmmakers as much as i just think this is really difficult source material to make the second half be as compelling as the first half and i think they know that they definitely spent a lot of time talking about how endings can be disappointing (laughs) throughout the course of this film they must have said the ending sucks 10 times during the course of this movie and i think they know which
1: i which i love because i know that king has gotten a lot of crap for that throughout most of his career so i thought that was very very funny
2: yeah, and I just, so I think um, it was an uphill battle, and I think they did a fairly good job. I uh, To anyone who is disappointed by the way it all came together because they love the first film so much, I get it, but I think it's just the nature of the story that they had to tell, and I, there may be a better way to adapt it. I think they went a lot further, but I don't think that they've done it yet. <laughs> I don't think they've cracked quite cracked the code yet. Now, Andy Muschietti, he has said that there is a four-hour cut of this chapter of the film and that he is considering because he had always talked when the first film came out that he wanted to do a director's cut of chapter one and it never came out. He had promised the Blu-ray was going to come out like that January after the movie came out and it just never materialized. And in a recent interview, he said what he's thinking about doing now is doing a super cut version of the film because again, a four hour version of chapter two exists where he takes it chapter 1 it chapter 2 and then he's going to go back and shoot two new scenes for this supercut version that he has been wanting to do that they never shot and they he is going to make one kind of whole bloody affair to reference the Quentin Tarantino supercut. Uh, he's going to make a uh, one big version of the story and hopefully that'll like the extended version of the hateful eight that's on Netflix hopefully we'll get it maybe in that type of format. And I think that would work much better because I think this is something that works really well in the form of literature. And I think it would actually work really well split up into more episodes.
1: Yes. And I think that is a thousand percent right. Cause immediately I'm, I think about the haunting of Hill house, you know, what was it? Eight parts, 10 parts. And I think that if this was done in that way, and obviously I'm not even talking about remaking it, but taking the super cut and let's say it ends up being, I mean, if there's a four hour version of this, let's say there's a three plus hour, that's, you know, pushing eight hours. And if they are they could yeah. do it in such a way they could find good breaks. I have not watched the Hateful Eight version on Netflix. I saw Hateful Eight when it came out, but I haven't seen the version on Netflix. I don't know how they- Oh, I do, love it. Did they do it organically? Did it feel like parts? I mean, I'm assuming- You don't even notice
2: what they are. And I've seen Hateful Eight probably- five times if not a half dozen times on blu-ray and so i know the film pretty well but they basically just extended little bits and pieces here and there give you a little more dialogue a little more character color some pieces are more obvious that they're added other pieces i just thought i didn't really notice what they added in this episode but in the course of that running time tarantino added 45 minutes to the cut and it just feels more novelistic Is that that a word? (laughs) Yes,
1: no, it is. And and I think that that really is the issue here. And I think because of that issue and because, as you pointed out, this is so hard to translate from the original source material to this medium, which is it's different. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of the whole well, The book is better. The book is different. You know, books are internal and you can get people's psychology and, you know, whereas movies are visual and it's what's on the surface and the actor has to convey all of that. Otherwise you're just going to have people, you know, talking exposition, which is clunky and awkward most of the time. And so it's a really hard thing to do. And I think overall it works. I think for some people, this will be pretty scary and effective. I, I feel like some of it will over time end up not working. I, I mean, I, I immediately think of the dinner scene without giving anything away. That I think there's some things mm-hmm. in that that play almost. I mean, if you want to play it more as comedy, like dark comedy, I think it would play better as that. Uh, but I kind of wonder yeah. in 10 years from now, 15 years from now are those things going to be taken the same way? Are they going to be as effective or are, are people going to go back? And go, wow. That, that, that part doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work at all. <laughs> well, I kind of took it like that
2: this time. Yeah. You know, it's a silly, but I, you know, I was kind of enjoying it anyway. Yeah. There were a few scenes in the film like that. I mean, there's a scene that's in the trailer where Pennywise floats above a statue of Paul Bunyan on balloons. For my taste, you could, just chop that right out of the movie. it's like not scary in any way and it's completely goofy and takes me out of the film but i you know as much as i am here for the super cut as much as i'm here for i would go and watch a four-hour version of this movie today this movie does feel too long mm-hmm. like i you know yeah. it, it was definitely like i checking my watch kind of a feeling toward the end this had more endings than Lord of the Rings Return of the King. I mean it just kept ending and
1: ending and ending. I wouldn't ending. go that far. I will disagree with you on that point. It, 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 was, not, so. it was not that bad. I was not. I don't bad.
2: know. I, I think it I think it ended at least two, too many times. But there were it just, you know, and I think the device, which I enjoy because I again I love the kids from part one, so I'm very excited to see more of them in, in part two. But the device of uh, Cross dissolving between the past and the present, and the past and the present, it just gets sort of tiresome by the fourth time. And so, when you know you've got three, at least three more to go, it just is like, okay,
1: yeah, it, oof, it, it, is it, a, it took effort, I think, at times to keep up with the narrative, and and it, it, it
2: just takes the wind out of your sails yeah. in terms of pacing. Yes. And I think the film is paced really poorly. I think it's totally all over the place and I think I don't, that doesn't always bother me because I think it's okay to switch really quickly between a scare and a laugh and a dramatic moment, but it is all over the place. Like there were so many laugh breaks where I thought, okay, like that was funny, but that really did disrupt the tone of the movie. You know, Actually, I didn't mind and I agree with you. I think Bill Hader is the star of this film on multiple levels because performance is hilarious, I think the character of Richie is written in a really funny way. He performs both the funny and the dramatic parts far better, especially the dramatic parts far better than I could have imagined he could do. And then I love his character arc, which there is a lot of debate about online, which uh, we will talk about more at the end yes, of the show in a spoiler will. discussion.
1: Can I gotta be honest with you, I loved where the character went. I loved the 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 sort of. I, I know this is an obnoxious word, but the, the, there was like this gravitas. I mean, especially when you consider the opening of the movie, um, it, it, you know, there there was things about his character and just the sort of reveal that happens, yeah. I, I thought was really well done. And I thought that, you know, that, that idea of, and I don't think it's giving any way to talk about, you know, the, the idea of like, you know, really being true to who he was. And I, I think that was a really, because his character was always so good. Well, obviously, Goofy, <laughs> and just and sort of over yeah. the top with his humor, and he obviously uses it big time since he was a little boy as a defense mechanism. And I right. always, you know, I love Finn Wolfhard. I, I'm a massive Stranger Things fan. I will say his Richie Tozier, especially after revisiting it, eh, there were t- and it's sort of like as an adult you kind of get annoyed with kids when they just won't stop that where they you know they're just everything's a joke. It's like okay, yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. Shut up, though. No, okay, great. <laughs> Whereas we, with this one though, and it maybe just because of Bill Hader's delivery. most of that worked for me. Like when he was being a little bit, you know, mean to his friends and and being kind of a a smart ass about everything, I felt like he was, I don't know, he just, he pulled it off better for me as as a character. Even with Finn Wolfhard was also one of the standouts, I think, of chapter one, but there were moments where Richie just got to be a little much, a little bit much.
2: Yeah, I disagree with you on that. I felt like Finn Wolfhard's performance in the first film for me was uh, one of the better things about the movie and i i think that bill Hader complements his performance rather well like i i think you know no offense to icon harry anderson but i you know i feel like and of and icon seth green yeah yeah <laughs> but i but i definitely feel like both of those were improvements on, on those characters you know and i and i'm a big fan of the 1990 film as i've said but um I don't know. I, I think other than the very debatable Tim Curry element, I feel like this improves on pretty much everything.
1: Yes. I think I think that's true.
2: It also leans on that version a lot. Yes. Like it owes a lot of its visualization to that film and probably took a lot from that movie, <laughs> you know, or that miniseries. But um I'm simultaneously really impressed that they pulled this off at all and also understand why people are Disappointed to some degree as well. should say this did very well in theaters. I believe it is the second highest horror opening of all time. Yes. Second only to It Chapter One yep. in 2017. So it has done very well. Um, it's a very successful movie, and I'm, I'm happy for horror for that reason. Yes. And, uh, you know, in terms of this cast and crew, I don't think it could have happened to a better group of people. I think one thing that's important. To understand about it, chapter two is that the first film deals with these childhood fears. And I think the second film really tries to look at what happens when those childhood fears aren't put away. And for me, that's a big part of what the movie is trying to accomplish. And I think in that way, it succeeds. It's just that's maybe not as scary as tapping into new fears for some of these characters, you know, they're dealing with the scars of their past. And so while I think that that makes for interesting character arcs for a few of them, it's not necessarily quite as scary as if they were able to find something that scares these characters now, you know what I mean? So they're, it's kind of like um, the stakes aren't as high because they're adults and they, and those things shouldn't be able to hurt them as much, but they do just because they're kind of, deeply ingrained personal injuries if that makes sense
1: it does it makes a lot of sense and i think you said it earlier too with the comment about you know kids are vulnerable and i think that is a, a huge piece of the puzzle
2: as we get into the spoiler discussion later especially with regard to richie's character i think there's a lot to say about
1: that for me at least all right so you want to do a rating recommendation on it chapter two yeah have we said it all I mean, I think we've said all we're going to say until the spoilers. (laughs) There's several things I want to say, but I can't say until spoilers.
2: Okay. So in chapter two, I understand why people are disappointed. I do feel like in the context of a standalone film, it does feel overlong. I feel like it's got pacing issues. I feel like it's got tonal issues, but I really enjoyed myself for the most part when I was in the theater. I thought the funny moments worked for me extremely well. I thought the emotional moments also worked for me extremely well. I think there were kind of goofy moments from the first chapter that I really disliked. And I was hoping those wouldn't be repeated here, but they were um, some of the CGI problems. I disliked in the first film were also repeated here. I was fine. I expected them this time. I was really kind of let down the first time. Cause I thought, you know, I want this to be a timeless film. It's so perfect. Almost like, like, just don't include this wonky CGI and this will be a film for the ages. But, um, you know, they did. And so I was—I went into this film fully expecting to see that again. And so I, that didn't surprise me. I feel like a lot of people online are like, why, why did they do this with the CGI? And like, well, that's what they did. The first film, why would this be any different? I think the thing that really surprised me was the digital de-aging. And I watched this film with Andy and William from Movie Podcast Weekly uh, and the theater and i walked down, and i was like what was going on with those kids faces it was so bizarre and their voices it was like really weird adr the whole time and doing some research yeah i was right they digitally de-aged the kids to m- better match um how old they were in the first film and they pitched up their voices digitally in post to try to match their voices better i think that's a mistake. I think the audience understands that they shot this a year or two after the original movie and that children grow up. And I think we're all
1: mature enough to like handle that fact and know that. It does make the question as as soon as they realized the first one was such a big hit and they were going to do part two. I am interested to know why maybe they didn't immediately go into production with the kids and get as much, you know, get the footage with, get everything with them. And I know you, you got, I, I think just,
2: they did go in pretty quickly. Really? I mean, okay. it, I guess a, the kids it's grow up pretty fast quick turnaround yeah. to have the movie come out two years yeah. to the day Yeah. after. Plus you've got one kid who's on a major television series. That's true. No, that's and true. And you have to yeah. schedule around that that's as true. well.
1: Easier, easier said than done. And
2: you've got major actors playing the adults yes. too, who also I'm sure had major scheduling Sure. issues, but and it's a huge budget movie probably as well. I don't know what the budget was, but, you know, the first film was the largest horror opening of all time. I'm sure they had a pretty hefty budget and they certainly had giant sets and set pieces and there was a lot to construct, I'm sure, for this film.
1: According to IMDb, it was $79 million, the budget.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think ideally you would approach this like you did the Harry Potter films and say, If this one's a success, we're going to go day one and go start filming again and have everything ready, have the script ready. And I don't know that they were that prepared. Yeah. Uh, Maybe the studio didn't believe in it as much as they did a Harry Potter. uh, Ironically, the same studio. But (laughs) (laughs) I think um, they did a pretty good job overall. I'm just saying rather than add this digital de-aging element to it, which is not going to age well. ironically (laughs) and and it just takes you out of the movie now like it's a thing it's distracting to me now so it's gonna be look really bad in five years it will it's gonna look like rubber face
1: yeah what was it a tron legacy was that the one The the sequel to tron where at the beginning they had jeff bridges and they had tried to do the de-aging thing and it just it did not i mean it made this look like state-of-the-art Perfection. Um and yeah. yeah. Well they
2: do it in all the Marvel movies, and it's fine, whatever. It's you know, the they were smart to make the Robert Downey Jr. de-aging a hologram, so you can kind of say, Oh, well, it was a hologram. <laughs> it was supposed to look fake. But um I think it's a weird choice. And I you know, I think it's the kind of thing that you're like, well, we have the money, let's spend it, you know. And I think uh, honestly.
1: I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. You you clearly disagree with me, but I feel like well, I disagree only. So I don't disagree with you that it didn't look great. <laughs> I'm disagreeing though that I think the alternative, perhaps from a pulling you out of the movie perspective, if I'm supposed to buy that this is the same time period, these flashbacks are happening at the same time as the first movie, that wouldn't have worked for me at all. Now yeah. I will say, now for some kids, I think it did work. I think Bill, it was it, it, if they did it to him uh eddie i think was okay there was a few of them i think it was okay i think the two that jumped out at me the most that i really noticed were uh like you said obviously richie that was probably the worst and then uh ben i think those two jumped out at me the most as i recall yeah
2: and those are the actors who changed the most in between as i understand and i I don't know that they did it to all of them but they definitely did it to those okay here's my thing it's the same reason i don't like cgi generally i would prefer something organic that took me out of the film than something okay cartoonish that takes me no
1: that's fair that's a fair argument and honestly there's also a another solution that makes this probably 20 to 30 minutes shorter which is you don't have all the stuff of the kids in it just be i mean i get it the first movie is the hit and you're still trying to tap into that sort of stranger things vibe i get why they did it (laughs) but well
2: here's the thing here's the other thing the kids don't move for another eight years why does it have to be at the same time period yeah yeah that this movie is happening that what happens to some of the characters like Richie, for example, did not have to in any way overlap with Pennywise, the clown, you know?
1: That's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. It could have been a year or two later. Sure. I don't know. It, that's fair.
2: I think that's a mistake to think that you have to make those things fit. But anyway, all of that aside, it, it was an enjoyable film. There's plenty to argue about, which is always nice. And I am going to give this one a 7.5 out of 10. I'm going to say see it in the theater and I will definitely buy it. And for
1: me, I am actually, I did not come in as high as you, but not real far away. I was at a seven. Uh, it, it wasn't, it didn't work for me nearly as well as the first one, obviously. Uh, and I do think it is a scene in the theater. Always, you know, support horror movies at the, at the cinema, if you can. Uh, I am going to buy it, but for the series, why well, I've waited to buy it. Chapter one is I remember you specifically talking about the director's cut so that's one of the things i was holding out for <laughs> <laughs> i remember when you said that's like oh well didn't promise I'm, it yeah and you, i remember you saying that i was like, oh well i'm gonna wait for that and then never showed it up never showed up so here we are i'm gonna wait for the super like the one i want to see is the super cut now i realize it might end up on netflix or whatever we'll see um but i really that's what i'm holding out. I, at the very least i definitely would buy if they got both movies in a box set with a bunch of extras and stuff then i'll i'll probably pick that up as well Okay, so that wraps up our feature review for IT Chapter 2. Now it's time for our feature review of Ready or Not. This bride... I can't wait to be a part of your family. ...is here for the right reasons. Your house were beautiful. But his family...
0: Hide and seek.
1: ...is playing games. Good luck. When someone new joins the family, you have to play a game.
2: Those are the rules. They think. Four had to kill you Three. before sunrise two. on august 23rd ready or not here i
3: come Ready or not obviously i was very quiet during the review of it chapter two and i don't want to go too deep into it um but i do have a uh, procedure coming up and i have some prep that i have to do beforehand And, of course, the release of It Chapter 2 coincided with that to the point that I can't sit in a theater for three hours. I just can't right now with this prep that I have to do. So I made the choice to see Ready or Not instead. And I've been looking forward to It Chapter 2 for two years. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to wait uh, for the Blu-ray to come out before I can finally see it just because of the situation I'm in. wasn't sure if I could make it through Ready or Not either. This was sort of a test ground. Uh, to see if I can <laughs> still go to the theater because this one's an hour and a half and the It movie is uh, just 10 minutes shy of three hours, uh, which, which was the deciding factor. I was very interested during the listening to your review of It Chapter 2. I, I really can't wait to see it now. But anyway, Ready or Not, 2019, set it up. Uh, Grace, played by Samara Weaving, is marrying into the De, uh, Le Domas family, uh, a very wealthy, prestigious family. I guess they got rich in the gaming business. Well, Grace is marrying uh, Alex, the youngest son of the uh, Ledomas family who has uh, sort of stayed away from the family for a while. He hasn't hasn't really associated with them to the point that this is the first time Grace is meeting them and not only is she meeting him, she's getting married right there at the estate. So the marriage goes off, everything seems fine. Her um, she, her new in-laws are a little bit bizarre, but she finds out exactly how bizarre they are on on the wedding night at midnight. When Alex breaks the news to her that she's expected to play a game, to be initiated into the family. Uh, she definitely thinks it's a little strange, but she wants to impress her new in-laws, so she agrees to the game. And what it is, there's a box and there's this whole setup about how this has been passed down from uh, you know, uh, older generations. You pick a card from this box, you play whatever game there is. There are some other People in the room who have married into the family, they got things like chess or, you know, games like that. Grace pulls uh, hide and seek. Seems innocent enough, but you find out that there's uh, something very sinister about that particular card when it's pulled, and before Grace knows it, she's running for her life. Uh, That's the general setup for this film, and I have to say that as much as I missed seeing It Chapter 2, I was very, very happy that I did get a chance to see Ready or Not. I did have a great time. This was a lot of fun. This, this, this movie was an incredible amount of fun. I liked Samara Weaving in the casting. She was in Mayhem, and she played sort of a similar kind of character. So yeah, I knew that she was going to be able to sort of hold her own. With this family, but I think it was the family itself, that dynamic that I really liked. And they did set this up at the beginning with a flashback to when Alex uh, and his brother, Daniel, uh, played as an adult by Adam Brody, were younger. And the last time the hide and seek card was pulled. And I think it's interesting how that carries forward because it it was dealt with the marriage of, of their aunt Helene. And Aunt Helene in the later version becomes much more gung ho about this whole thing, and you find out why, especially when you, when you think back to that flashback. Uh, so for me, I really liked the dynamic of this family, and I loved the setting, this 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 sort of mansion. It sort of harkens back to, to something like Clue or that the uh, very early eighties comedy with uh, Don Knotts and, and um, Tim Conway called the private eyes and yeah I, li- I like movies set in, in in that that sort of a location and this is really a very cool mansion I mean yes it has the servant quarters in in the back but the way it's even lit there's just something sinister about it and the way that everything plays out I think, is, is what I really, really enjoyed. I mean, yes, it's definitely a comedy. There's comedy in this movie. But there is a real darkness under pretty much all of the comedy. And as far as another standout performance, uh, Henry uh, Zerny, I guess is how it's pronounced, who played the uh, patriarch, uh, Tony Le Domas, I thought he was spectacular. I really did. And uh, I thought the whole cast did a, a good job. Uh, but he was in a special scene. And this is probably my favorite Andy McDowell performance. She plays um, Tony's wife, Becky. This is my favorite Andy McDowell performance since Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And yes, I am including Groundhog Day in that. I thought Andy McDowell was really, really strong in this movie. And kind of brought a warmth under all of the all of the sinister i guess the sinisterness if that is a word of her character i thought she did a great job of bringing a little bit of warmth out of it while at the same time maintaining that we're doing this for the family sort of feeling and i really loved how the movie wound up at the end i i loved where it went when you find out why this is happening and the ending i'll just say was very satisfying for me Um, so I'm leave it. I know, Joel, you saw this as well. I'll kind of pass it over to you at this point and get your
1: thoughts. So, yes, I am so there with you, Dave. I, I could tell you right now, and I know I, I I might get known in this uh, show for hyperbole because uh, after the crawl (laughs) review, but even though this movie you know you could get into the whole debate is it a horror movie is it well first off it's bloody as i'll, I'll get out I mean, it's gory it's bloody oh yeah super violent yeah. and in, in in the most entertaining of ways it is definitely a dark comedy it is a strong through line but it deals with subject matter that i say playing it firmly in horror territory again without giving anything away and you know i mean if you're if if you are going to say that brain dead, uh, you're dead alive or evil dead two or any movie like that, that's a horror movie, which I do. Uh, yes. They're funny. And yes, it's like splat stick as Ramy likes to call it, but it's, it works still as a horror because I mean, there's just a, some very suspenseful moments in it. And what I really love is that again, where I think it works best in movies like this is the characters all play it straight. I mean, even though there is plenty of opportunity to yeah you know some and some of the acting is a bit you know broad I guess in certain parts but it's it's never like winking at the camera and especially Samara Weaving is a standout I loved her character I loved her performance I mean I think probably not since Rec Three Genesis have I enjoyed seeing a bride just uh, you know letting all this bloodshed go I know we could say Kill Bill but I'm trying to keep it in the genre I loved all of that I, there's something about a bride in a torn bottom third of her gown to make it like a slightly more of like a skirt. It's dirty, it's covered in blood. She's wearing sneakers and she's got like a, a bandolero across, across her chest and just, you know, kicking ass. And it's, it's amazing. Uh, I just, I love that so much. But what I really appreciated was, you know, here you have the villains and it's not to give anything away to say that the, the elements of this family that several of them are pretty villainous, but there's this sense of sympathy and empathy within their own ranks and within their own circles. I mean, they're not played one dimensional. I mean, you brought up Andy McDowell's performance. I mean, there's moments where you really get what she's saying. I mean, you're totally, uh, you know, it's, it's abhorrent and she's wrong, <laughs> but you, know, you get the sense at any rate, uh, that these people are all doing this because they truly feel like they have to, that there really isn't a choice. And as for some of them, they don't really want to do it. I mean, it's not like they're doing this because it's for giggles. It's something that they have to do. And, and I really appreciated that. And then, you know, just some of the kills that happen along the way are, are are endlessly hilarious and entertaining. (laughs) Just
3: the way. Yes. I I absolutely agree. And I think probably for me, what what you're talking about is, is that they have to do it. Even the patriarch. You know, Tony, uh, Henry Ernie's character, he seems like the driving force behind this whole thing when he's the one you know, sort of distributing uh, weapons and everyone else is just sort of like, uh, and he seems sort of into it. But then he even has that scene later on um, where he's saying, you think I want to do this? I have an eight o'clock tea time tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, You know, yeah, yeah. this is this is not what I <laughs> yeah. want to be doing tonight. Yes. Yeah. You know, so so all of the characters feel, you know, and, and and that this is something they have to do now. As far as the horror elements, yes, you're right. There are there are things that that are happening horrific where it gets really close, I think, is in what they call. And I don't want to give too much way here. The goat pit. That to me was a very strong scene and uh, in part because of the way Samara Weaving played it but also just the situation she found herself in and the realization that that sort of uh, brought about um, and then how she had to get out of oh said yeah 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 i was cringing the <laughs> entire yep. time oh yeah there's there, there
1: some really great cringe inducing moments in it uh, i mean just yeah there's several moments with her character where she has to squeeze through or do certain things and it, it it she sells it really well and absolutely yeah and i and i want to back up what you said too about the location because clue is a great example Uh, private eyes which by the way that's one of those movies that i saw when i was really little and i didn't get that it was a comedy and it scared the crap out of me i mean yeah me too you remember that movie (laughs) okay josh you seen it too okay it terrified yeah
3: i got to see it in the theater yeah
1: i I just
2: revisited it a few years ago and i was like oh this is not what i thought it was (laughs)
1: That <laughs> really built it up in my mind. Yes, it was. It was one of those movies for me as well. So, uh, but that lo- that t- since you know that movie, Josh, that's sort of and I'm going purely from memory on Private Eyes, but that location and that vibe, and like Clue is another great example mm-hmm. uh, of just that feel of you're in this big house with the you know the secret passageways and all of that stuff. It really latches onto that, and you know it's funny because I think you could easily point to an entire subgenre of movies where a lot of that stuff became very tropey and cliche. And it was used a lot over a period of time, but it's been, I feel like a really long time since we've gotten that, uh, I feel like knives out the trailer for *Knives out kind of has a similar oh my gosh. look. I'm so excited oh, for I knives. I haven't watched the trailer. I just saw the poster and I was like, okay, this is
2: going to be my new favorite film.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you're going to go gaga. And the trailer was great because it didn't give away much, but it, it gives you the tone wonderfully. But it has that look and feel that just, you know, you're in the big sort of palatial state. And obviously, you know, you could get into the whole aspect of this movie is saying something about, like, these people are like the 1% of the 1%. This is the old, yeah. old money. And there, there's definitely a, a statement there that's being made about it. But I think there's also this statement I took away from, which was they have more to lose than you do that, that at the end of the day, <laughs> what, what they really are having to do and what they're to, to, it's sort of that idea that the person, you know, who, who comes to the negotiation table with, with the most to lose is going to lose, right? The person who cares the least can walk away. And these people are sure they've got everything and they've got, you know, this is amazing lifestyle, but what they have to do to keep it, it's just so not worth it. <laughs> it's really not worth right. it.
3: Right? Uh, yeah. well, at least, at least, not that time and one time before. It seems like every other time it wasn't an issue.
1: Yeah. But you can see how it's but, affected their whole lives. Like the, the, certain key yes. characters, it's messed them up just knowing that this is a thing. And it was fantastic. Right. Like I just, I, I, uh, I there's so many things I want to talk about, but I can't because it'll just spoil the movie. But.
3: Right, right. I'd like to, I'd love to go into that ending a little bit more, but I don't.
1: Oh my God. So
3: would I. <laughs> yeah. That's something you just sort of have to experience.
1: Yes, it is. It is. If
3: there was one weakness and it's not. The actor's fault. I thought it might have been the husband character. Oh, you mean Samara Weaving's husband? Yes, uh, Alex, mm-hmm. uh, played by Mark O'Brien, who I thought did a good job. I thought the the acting was fine. Uh, it's just that there are certain shifts in the character that I didn't buy a hundred percent, considering where it started from and his history with the family. But I could also kind of see them, so it wasn't it wasn't like terrible. It's just I uh, for me. He was the least interesting in the family. Sure. All the other characters, I mean, even the people who married into the family, I thought were were more interesting. That would be my only real sort of, and I don't even know if it's a negative. Uh, it's
1: just, he's a different sort of character, I guess, in the film. I get where you're coming from, and it's going to be hard to talk around this, but you should, you and anybody who saw it will know what I'm talking about. When you realize that he knew about this to some degree, even though he, I don't think it's giving anything away to say that he's very conflicted <laughs> about right. the whole thing. Um, the fact that his character does the things he does and would be willing to do the things he, there's a there's a selfishness there. I guess it's the best way to put it, inherent in the character from the word go. Mm-hmm. That is something in the character, I feel. And I do, I personally felt like it was established that there was, his character was established in such a way. But to your point, he isn't Is a lot of the other characters are so, like larger than life in a sense. Yeah. And he's not, he is definitely feels way more grounded mm-hmm. than anybody there. Yeah,
3: I agree. I agree. And I think maybe that was why I didn't find him as interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point because you're right. He did sort of lead her into this. <laughs> he, he sure did. <laughs> this woman that he loves, this woman yeah. who has changed his life. He yeah. sort of led her into this without really letting her know what she might be in for. And, you know, there was always that thing that's kind of in the back of his mind, like, Hey, odds are, it's not going to happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's a crapshoot. <laughs> but anyway, as far as a rating, I'm probably going to give this a nine and I'm going to say definitely see it in the theater
1: and I can't wait for it to come out and uh, and, and see it again. Well, I am right there with you, Dave. I have it as a nine. I think when I came out of the theater, I was at a 9.5 and I can't, I have no real reason other than just, you know, I always have that sort of, when I really love a movie, I have that high that hits me and I'm like, this is a 10. And then, you know, days right, or later, right. I'm like, well, is it really... <laughs> Is it really a 10, but I, this is a solid nine for sure. I say, see it in the theater. I'm going to buy this one. I, and this is it to me. I, I don't, I don't want to like go back to the it chapter two discussion, but this is a movie I could see myself revisiting multiple times. You know, it's a, first of mm-hmm. it's a really quick watch. It's an hour and a half long and it flies. It just flies yeah, from beginning does. to end. And it's, it it's so well told. Whereas a movie like It Chapter Two, again, I'm looking forward to the super cut of it to see that all come together, but I can, just that movie by itself, I don't know if I'll ever re-watch I mean, maybe someday, but I just, I couldn't see myself, hey, you know, I'm going to watch It Chapter Two. I just don't ever see that happening. This movie, absolutely rewatchable. Loved it, loved it, loved it. All right, so that wraps up our feature review for Ready or Not, and now it is time for our feature review of Satanic Panic. I took this job for the tips. Deliver for meal basin. It's outside our zone. I'll do it. Are you ready to make an investment in your future? Yes! Are you ready to take back what you are owed? Yes! Are you
3: ready to fully commit yourselves to Satan? Yes! Who are you? I'm the pizza guy. A oh,
1: girl? Are he by any chance
2: a virgin? That's a very
3: personal question. She's a virgin.
1: Okay. Whose power unlocks our true potential? Hell, Satan! Do
3: you have any idea what's happening here tonight?
1: Hell, Satan! They are summoning
2: Baphomet, a
1: big demon from hell. And when that clock strikes 12, he is gonna rip you open!
3: Where's my virgin? I don't know what's happening.
1: My mom and her butt buddies are booty calling Baphomet. And they're not going to stop until you're strapped to a barbed wire altar. Ah! That's bonkers.
3: Any idea why the rich stay rich and you stay screwed? Mm,
0: Better health care. They are stronger than us.
3: A virgin, no sacrifice. Let me protect you.
0: Oh, who are you people? Death
1: to
2: the weak, wealth to the strong. Okay, hey, Satanic Panic is a 2019 horror comedy from Chelsea Stardust and Fangoria. And it is from the IMDB synopsis about a pizza delivery girl at the end of her financial rope has to fight for her life and her tips when her last order of the night turns out to be high society Satanists in need of a virgin sacrifice. So that that says it all (laughs) (laughs) pretty much yeah, sums it up um i realized watching this movie i really like pizza delivery horror that should be a (laughs)
1: subgenre pizza delivery horror
2: (laughs) yeah i was thinking of the film slice from last year from 824 it's not a great film but there's something about that world that's just really fun and it's rife for horror like the idea that you have to go to a stranger's house Mm -hmm. And sometimes enter their house and, you, and they can call you to them anytime they wish. That's kind of a creepy world to play in sure. for, you know, for filmmaker. And uh, yeah, I, I like the way that that operates in both this and Slice from last year. I'm trying to think of other pizza delivery horror films. There's a scary pizza delivery moment in the Ninja Turtles movies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that might be a bit of a reach.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the film is, for all intents and purposes, Chelsea Stardust's uh, debut feature film. She also did a segment for Blumhouse's Hulu series Into the Dark and her segment was all that We Destroy. I thought that was a really strong one. It was one of my favorites from that series. I, overall, I will say just as a side note that into the dark series is, Really good, and anyone who hasn't seen it, it's worth at least your free trial over at Hulu to catch all of those episodes. I liked all of them, but uh, Culture Shock is another one that I would like to visit in the future.
1: And They Come Knocking is another good one. That's the Father's Day-themed one, I guess, with the Father's Day. The guy takes his two daughters into the desert, and they're in a trailer, and Hills Have Eyes-ish sort of meets them, (laughs) Or, or the strangers vibe happens, and yeah, it's pretty pretty creepy at times.
2: All the way destroy Chelsea's other film is the Mother's Day installment. Oh, okay, so. cool. There go. Anyway, for all intents and purposes, this is her first uh, features. Before that, she was an employee over at Blumhouse. She was Jason Blum's assistant on a lot of movies for many years. She worked on everything from the Sinister series to the Paranormal Activity series. She worked on Whiplash and Mercy and Ouija and, all of those films that they did over there for that period of time, and uh, apparently gleaned a lot, and decided she was going to start directing herself. This film is, as I understand it, Fangoria's second feature film. It's at least the second in this new era of Fangoria, and I would say if you take this film and Puppet Master: The Littlest Reich side by side, you can kind of start seeing a brand. You know, you can you can start kind of gleaning what uh the Fangoria as a film production company, they are starting to form a brand identity. Mm -hmm. I'm for one here for it. It is a little bit more on the comedy spectrum than I typically enjoy, but I like something about how they approach these movies. They're all practical effects, they're really gory. You know, it's not Shakespeare. (laughs) <laughs> it's got uh, some stronger p- points and some weaker points. Rebecca of mine basically plays uh, this satanic high priestess who lives in the ritzy part of town and all of her other extremely wealthy. And actually, when you guys were talking about ready or not, I was thinking about uh, this movie and that movie probably very similar. <laughs> yeah. Take place in the same world. Yeah. But um, in this film, you basically, you know, as, as the synopsis said, this young uh, pizza delivery girl played by Haley Griffith kind of stumbles into this world of high power Satanists and has to navigate that world, which becomes very deadly when they find out that she is a virgin and they just happen to be in need of a virgin for that evening's sacrifice that will call forth bapomet into existence
1: on earth well no and i, I want to just back up what you said about the the sort of vibe i guess of the uh, fangoria film so far i don't know how much you guys were into the original fangoria m- movies back in the early 90s mind warp which came out in or i think it was around 91 or 92 and uh, there was Severed Ties was another one. And then Children of the Night, which was a vampire movie. So those are the three I specifically remember. I remember reading about them in Fangoria. I remember renting them the second they came out at the video store. And I think if you look back at those three films from the early 90s, at that time, obviously totally different uh, people involved. But that was a similar thing. Like I think those, as I recall, Severed Ties, I remember the least of the three. But definitely with Mind Warp and Children of the Night. Now, the difference is tonally, I feel like those were trying to be more serious, especially Mind Warp. Uh, with actually Bruce Campbell's in that Ingus Scrim is in it. And it's, it's a sci-fi type horror, but it was definitely played way more straight than this was. But to your point about that identity and brand, it was even going on then. Um, but this is definitely going in, in a little bit different direction where it's, it's sort of like it goes, it's definitely got all the horror elements there. But to your point, the dark comedy is, is very heavy. Now, Ready or not and now, Dave did you get a chance to watch Satanic Panic? Uh yes I did. Okay, would you agree with me when you say it, it is there are definite similarities <laughs> to Ready or Not as far as the elements at play here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think this movie though obviously puts it out there, I would say relatively early on that you know there, there is a supernatural <laughs> element at play here and right. and I, I think you know, it's funny. I went into this movie. I knew very little about it. I knew the title. I'd heard about it. Uh, and it may have been from you guys. It was the only place I ever heard about it. But I remember thinking going in that I knew it was supposed to have some humor to it. But I guess what I think, Satanic Panic, immediately I'm thinking 80s, right? Uh, uh, right? People being accused of being Satanists that weren't. And so I thought it might go more in that direction. So I was sort of bringing my own bias into the movie, I think, initially. Yeah, I think anyone... And I was the same way. And I and I
2: will say my own personal kind of vendetta against this movie is that I was working on a documentary that we were calling Satanic Panic at the time. And then I heard that this film was in production and I knew, you know, just for the fact that it's fictional, was going to come out probably several years before we would ever f- complete the documentary. So I was a little bummed out about that. And the documentary that I was working on was about a specific case in the 1980s of, uh, about a young boy who was being accused of beating a Satanist and a murderer and everything. And so when I heard about this, I thought, Oh dang it. Someone's beat me to the punch and they're doing like a fun fictionalized version. So they can kind of get away with doing anything they want that documentary. Unfortunately, the producer pulled out because the main character we were interviewing ended up going to prison for child molestation and the producer was just kind of like yeah i don't really want to be involved with this project anymore and just kind of (laughs) left which is understandable but i will say as a storyteller that just makes the story more rich and creepy in my opinion but um you know whatever that's that's what that kind of fizzled out anyway so i was really excited about the possibility of a film that dealt with the ear of the actual satanic panic ultimately i think it's just a fun catchy title that has absolutely nothing to do with the content of this movie other than satan and so they took they chose the flashy title but i still think there actually is room for and we need i think some movies to deal with actual satanic panic i think it would be really exciting i don't want to hold that against this movie necessarily because i think it is fun and i think the over-the-top nature of that title matches the the over-the-top presentation of this movie and so
1: yeah i think that's fair
2: uh, in that way it fits
1: yeah and i think that too good back to the i'm not gonna belabor the whole ready or not comparison but i think whereas ready or not the characters especially the the wealthier ones that are the the villains let's say are definitely given more to work with in regards to being fully well relatively fully realized people whereas in this it is played pretty much down the line you know the rebecca remain character is is very i mean if she had a mustache she would be twirling it i mean there was you know there 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 is not a lot of I mean, I you guess you kind of get a sense that, you know, no pun intended, maybe she has a heart uh, a little bit uh, when in regards to another character, but it's, it's never really gone into too much. So I guess where I'm going with this is Ready or Not is played as ridiculous sort of over the top as it is as a story is played relatively serious and straight by the the actors. So like this, it definitely is way more like just broad and just cut out there. Now, it took me a minute to adjust to it but I actually got kind of used to it. Like I didn't mind. It. I, I didn't like this movie nearly as much as I liked ready or not, but I did enjoy the movie. Like I did, there were aspects of it. And honestly, I do want to commend, I don't know how you guys felt about, it, but I thought Haley Griffith, cause I've never seen her in anything before. I hadn't either. Yeah. I just, I really found her engaging. I thought she was fantastic. Yeah. She was yeah, really absolutely. good because she conveyed the innocence and everything Now there was a reveal of her character. Uh, maybe what, like, definitely past the halfway point of the movie that I kind of think we should have maybe known about earlier. I think it would have helped to get a lot of like, okay, you know, where is she coming from and, and why she is the way she is. I mean, it didn't necessarily need to be at the very beginning of the movie, but I just kind of think that had we had alluded to some of the, the reveals about her backstory earlier, it would have made other things happening. Like it would have made it seem more like, you know, she's this, Truly innocent person in this very disturbing situation because there is the element where, unlike Ready or Not, where that's a character who is put in a situation that, through no fault of her own, (laughs) you know she, she, you know, she thought she's marrying the love of her life, and and this whole thing happens. This character straight up is like, you know, I get that her, yeah, she didn't get tipped and and it ran out of gas, but and I don't feel like this giving anything major away, but she puts herself right into it i mean there's definitely that element of like well come on i mean you don't hear what they're talking about i mean you're not at all disturbing you're breaking and entering i mean there's other things that she does but i get you got to get her in there um I, I that worked for me honestly like it, i thought it i thought it played pretty well for me she had that run-in
3: with her co-worker who talked about the last time he went out to this neighborhood how the right. same thing happened to him and how he went into the house to sort of demand Yes, um, his tip, and then his story just gets wild as, as to what <laughs> he experienced. Um, of course, you you believe him now, you know. I wasn't. It's was like one of those things, like yeah, right, guy. But then when the when you see what plays out, you kind of believe. Well, I guess maybe that did happen in this neighborhood. <laughs> um, so it, it didn't bother me as much when she went into the into the house either. And also with with her backstory, I didn't mind when it came out. It did come out past the halfway point, but it was. She didn't, She only revealed it because she had to in that moment. Mm-hmm. It was not something she ever meant to talk about with anybody because it was obviously very painful for her. So I think she was sort of keeping it. That was the reason she was keeping it in was because she just didn't want to, you know, it's not something she even really wanted to deal with. But it, she was in a situation where it's almost like, well, talk, talk, talk. And, and that's sort of what I guess came out because she doesn't have a lot else going on in her life. So I guess that was really the only thing she, she actually had to talk about at that moment. And it really does change the character at that point, even though it is well past the halfway point. It's, it's like, wow. I mean, it, that it really changed her a lot for me mm-hmm.
1: uh, as yep. well. It's that giving you a way to say Jerry O'Connell's in it, right? I don't think no, I don't, no, him. no, not at all.
2: I mean, I was very surprised that he was in it, but also, you know, then I realized, oh, well, it's her husband. That's probably why they made it in the husband.
3: Sure, probably. probably, Right. Exactly. And then I kind of liked I I didn't mind his scene, especially where it sort of went at the end. I mean, you get a
1: pretty graphic. (laughs) That was a very clever way (laughs) to do what you did. Right.
3: (laughs) I personally, I this film really sort of I'm not even going to say it grew on me because I didn't dislike it out of the gate. But I just found myself getting more and more into it as it was going. It's got that one element that I really enjoy about movies. And I've said it time and again is that element of surprise where something happens and you're like, where the hell did that come from? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about a scene with two sisters in a house and, uh, and the main character <laughs> yes, yes. and where that eventually went. And you're like, what the yeah. hell is going on here? Yes. I love that in a movie something else i really liked him, and i'd like to talk either the director or the writers uh, of it just to find out uh, there's a scene where a character is chanting this character gypsy who was one of the over the top characters but yep. i you know again not one that really i thought it was still interesting and i liked the way that the actress played her actually she played her like lady elaine and mr Rogers. name <laughs> yes yeah would probably be the best way to put it yeah um she's chanting and the chant that she's doing, it's not an exact copy, but it's very similar to the chant of creation from Excalibur from 1981. I'm talking the same cadence. Oh, wow. And I thought, wow, that is an interesting little nod to that movie. And I don't know if it was the writers or the director or who had that in there, but it really felt like that, that, uh, that, that Merlin sort of gives to, um, to uh, Helen Mirren's character. Uh, in a scene in uh, in Excalibur, and I was like, "Wow, that's a real interesting sort of obscure little nod there," because the the chant of creation was made for Excalibur. I don't think that that was an actual chant. At least that's what I read. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe this is an actual chant. But I I remember reading that that was created just for the Excalibur movie, and it's interesting that they had that in this film as well. I just kind of I kind of smiled about that, but then. I just got, found myself getting more and more into it. And, and it's, uh, they even have, um, I didn't note it until the credits roll, but Michael Polish plays one of the characters in this. Uh, yeah. he, was the, he was the director of North Fork, him and his brother, which is right. a movie I really like from the early 2000s. Is it he married to Kate Beckinsale? Not Kate Beckinsale, but Kate Bosworth. He is, yes, he is currently married to Kate Bosworth. You're right. And this movie really grew on me as as it was going and as it got a little crazier uh and then it just gets more bonkers and i love that about a film and it did bring much like ready or not maybe not to the same level as ready or not i don't think it did but it did bring the uh the blood and uh and the gore um and there's a scene with some some entrails that I, thought oh, I found yeah. <laughs> really interesting. Um, there was a really great bit part player, Mike
2: E. Winfield, who was one of the other pizza delivery drivers. I wish he had been in the movie more. The one you were referring to earlier, Dave, who tells yes. the Moist's story. He had so much charisma. I was like, I love this guy. I was hoping he was going to be in it a lot more. But I'll tell you who I missed was
1: Jordan Ladd. I don't remember Jordan in the movie. Thank you for bringing that up. I was going to ask you guys, did you guys catch Jordan Ladd? I was thinking, who was she? Was she the, unless, because there's it's Kim Larson and Steve Larson, were they the parents of the sisters? Yes. Was she blonde? Yes, that okay. was her.
2: Okay. I mean, Jordan was the mom. Okay. Yeah. I, right. yeah, she, I didn't recognize her. Didn't look her.
1: like her. Yeah. Because I think they really made her be a more platinum blonde and yeah.
2: And then Jeff Daniel Phillips also had like a small role. It was kind of fun to see him in it as well, but. Right.
1: I will say, I just realized the music is done by Wolfman of Mars. And not only is that a beloved moniker here at HMP, but it's also uh, a good friend of mine. Kevin Spencer has done uh, artwork for a couple of their albums. So that's kind of oh, cool. cool. I didn't oh, nice. I just noticed that. Very cool.
2: I know, what, like Dave said about it growing on him. I think for me, it was just the fact that um, it wasn't what I anticipated it being when I walked in. And then it was more overtly comedy than a lot of stuff that we watch for this podcast. You know, and it's a low-budget indie film as well. But kind of taken on its own terms, I found it extremely charming, and I'm really excited to see more from Chelsea Stardust and also Haley Griffith. I, yes, for me, she really yeah. blew me away. Yeah, definitely, definitely
1: definite stand out. And I think this movie does something that a lot of movies don't do. Usually, movies do the opposite, in my opinion, that they end up not liking as much, which are what you said, Dave, you started in it and you're like, okay, yeah, maybe we'll see how this is going. And then as it progresses, you get more and more into it because of a few key surprises and twists and turns, it really starts to engage you. And then I think Really, honestly, a lot of it is uh, attributable to Haley Griffith's performance as the lead that she is just really entertaining and watchable and does such a good job. You really care about the character. And honestly, even I mean, even like, uh, you know, Ruby Modine, I mean, in, in sort of where that character goes, I mean, it was just some really cool things that happened. It really ended up by the end of it. I really liked the movie way more than I thought I was based on the first, you know. 10, 15 minutes of it. I was like, okay, I all mean, we'll get through it. But I really ended up liking it way more than I thought I would.
3: Yeah. I and mean, me too. I didn't go in with that with any uh, uh, preconceptions actually uh, as, as to what it was, it was going to be. Maybe that helped a little bit, but I'm with you. I like the first 10, 15 minutes. You're like, well, this is okay. You know, I, like, let's see where it goes. If it kind of stays at this level. And it didn't, it it escalated. And the scene with the two sisters, I think is what really pulled me in. <laughs> To be honest with you, and from that point in, I was sold. I was like, okay, let's see where this thing goes. Yeah, this movie's going there. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And
2: for me, it was just a pizza delivery. As soon as I saw that scooter, I was in. (laughs) Yeah, you saw a Vespa with
1: a pizza box on the back, and you are like, I'm all in. All right, so you guys want to throw out some ratings or recommendations? Dave, you want to give us yours? Sure. You know
3: what? I'm going to give it an eight. I was going to say 7.5. I'm going to give it an eight. I definitely recommend uh, checking it out. I do know that the uh, the DVD is coming out. I think it's mid-October, if I'm not mistaken. Let me just double check. It is actually October 22nd. Uh, the Blu-ray, I should say, not DVD. The Blu-ray for this, maybe DVD too. I'm not sure. It's coming out October 22nd. I don't know that I'm going to recommend a purchase. I definitely think though, it's it's one that you should rent and see and you may end up purchasing it uh, i do want to i will watch it again i'll be honest i'm going to say i would uh, not mind seeing this one again
1: all right wolfman
2: yeah um i'm a little bit lower than Dave. i'm going to call it a seven but i did really enjoy it i think you have to be okay with a film that's comedy first i think you have to be okay with a film that feels a little low budget indie um but if you're on board with both of those things i think you can really enjoy this it is an expensive rental, kind of like we were talking about with dust last week. Like, They're not inexpensive options for checking this out. You have to either rent it for $6.99 or buy it for $14.99, and those are both just uh, digital. And so those are um, kind of steep prices. I think if I was going to pay $14.99, I'd just wait for the Blu-ray. But if a $6.99 rental is something you can afford, and this sounds like your cup of tea, then I would. Say go ahead and check it out. It's uh, probably more than I would pay for it, but this isn't my favorite genre or
1: subgenre. All right, so I guess I get to be the jerk of the podcast. <laughs> I, I i liked the movie. I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, but to the the point you just made, Josh, it is not necessarily my favorite overall subgenre. Wait, you mean pizza delivery yeah. horror is not your favorite? Oh well, yeah, yeah, that—that's pretty much where I was going with this. Uh, I'm definitely, obviously, have a real uh, prejudice against uh, pizza delivery horror. Pizza delivery horror <laughs> theme-themed episode coming our way. But I think that I guess at the end of the day, the tone of this movie is a bit all over the place because it, it's never ever scary. I mean, at all, it's gross. I mean, it's got it definitely has some great, uh, you know, graphic, uh, gory effects. Um, but I guess for me personally, sometimes. I need that, but I need there to be another layer to it. So uh, for me, it's a six point five, but that's not like a I hated it or anything. I enjoyed it. I, I feel like it's a solid rental. I would say, hey, it, to you know what you said, Josh. If the price comes down a little bit in a rental, which it eventually will be, or it'll be on you know Amazon Prime or something, definitely check it out. I always think I'd be willing to get the Blu-ray, especially if it's loaded with extras, and I'd love to hear uh, Chelsea Stardust do a commentary, and because and, I'm always really interested when it's lower budget indie and just all of the stuff that they go through to make the movie. Uh, it's always very interesting to listen to. So I'd be definitely down for that. Um, but yeah, it's a 6.5 for me. I, I found it entertaining for what it is, but I definitely think this is a movie that, and even though, again, there are certain similarities to Reddit or not, if you're not somebody who likes very over the top, broad comedy uh, in your horror, eh, you, you probably are going to want to give it a pass.
3: Real quick, the uh, Blu-ray for this is currently being, uh, you know I guess for pre-order on Amazon, is $13.69, so it's less than the digital, to buy it digitally. And what's very interesting is the DVD is $13.99, so it's actually 30 cents more than the Blu-ray right now. <laughs>
1: Okay, so those are our thoughts on Satanic Panic, and uh, I think it's time for Dr. Shock's mini-reviews. The first movie I'm going to talk about is, is a 2019 film
3: called Body at Brighton Rock. i been dying to see this one. Yeah, the basic setup for it, um, a park ranger played by Karina uh, Fontes. She's not an experienced park ranger. She sort of handles like the smaller trails that around where the headquarters is. Well, one of her friends pulls this duty where she's she's got to uh, go out and sort of hang, uh, I guess, change out the paperwork of of um, the rules, the safety, the the hazardous conditions, and so forth throughout the uh, throughout the park. And one thing more experienced, Wendy says, "Okay, yeah, I, I can do that. Let me do that." And, uh, and the girls like, "Are you sure?" I mean, it's uh, you know, is this sure you're something you want to do? And she's like, "Oh, yeah, absolutely." Well, Wendy goes out, and as she's walking, she ends up getting lost. Uh, She takes a picture of herself at a certain point and sends it to her friend saying, hey, look, I'm doing okay. And they're they're like, where are you? And it turns out she's completely lost, and she's at Brighton Rock. And where she is, uh, she's not going to get back before nightfall. So to add to the problem, as she's up on top of this hill, she looks down and dead body below her. As uh, somebody who seems to have passed away several days, if not maybe a week earlier, may, well, maybe not a week, but definitely several days earlier, she calls it in on the radio and they tell her, well, you know, you got to stay there till we can send some help uh, and you're kind of far away and we're not exactly sure where you are, but we're going to try. And she's like, well, when do you think you'll be here? I mean, will you be here by midnight? He's like, No, it's getting dark. We're not coming till morning. You have to stay there. So you have this inexperienced camper staying with this dead body uh, in an area that she's never been before. And that's really where the movie sets up. And then it just takes from the experience, from that experience uh, throughout the night and and what she has to go through. Comedy in in this episode seems to be a running theme. And there's a very comedic sort of start to this film. Almost it was at the level of something like night of the living deb and then you know (laughs) deb where which which was a zomcom and i wasn't as much into it at the very beginning of the film i'll be honest with you because of that tone not that and i liked night of the living deb and i kind of said well maybe i'll I'll get to like this one it's just again i was expecting something different based on the cover you look at the cover you look at the poster you look at the cover of this you're expecting something specific yeah And it wasn't what I was getting at the very beginning. Now, once she's in the woods and once you realize the situation she's in, and I thought that, uh, you know, Karina Fontes did a really good job with this. It picks up like the tension does pick up and it gets real. And the fact that she's got this, this dead body there and she's, she's so inexperienced and there's a tent and there's something hanging there that seems to be dripping. So you don't, really know exactly what's going on who was who is this person what were they doing she she shows her an experience by investigating a little more than she should and she gets reprimanded for it on the radio but then the radio goes dead and it's just all this stuff that she's dealing with um uh, at the same time and the tension in those scenes the middle chunk of this movie i thought was really strong especially when night falls and what happens, and her mind starts playing tricks on her. Those scenes, um, where the mind's playing tricks, I thought is where some of the real horror came in. I, I don't know if they work for me just because of what was happening. Um, the scene that you're waiting for from the posters. Mm-hmm was probably the biggest letdown for me. And Mm. I don't want to go into spoilers, but, uh, well, if you've seen the poster for the movie, it's not really a spoiler. It doesn't last very long. It's not a major point of the movie. And there was never a point. There's a bear. If you've seen the movie, there's a scene where she's sort of being threatened by this bear. It does happen, but the bear was very... Seemed very timid to me, and there was never a time where I felt she was in any real danger. It's almost like it was a trained bear, but it was a little too trained. I mean, aside <laughs> from seeing a big bear coming at you, uh, which, which is, is scary, I enough, will say. Yeah, pretty scary. Me. It's not good. <laughs> no, and I would never want to even experience that. I don't even want a trained bear coming up to me. Uh, <laughs> but it was not as as intense, and I don't know that I really liked where the ending was, where the, they went with the final ending of the movie but that middle chunk of the film makes it worth seeing. At least I'm going to give this a seven and say it's a rental.
2: Oh yeah. I have,
3: I have been so looking
2: forward to this film. Um, the premise, the poster, and then Roxanne Benjamin is the director. This is her feature film directorial debut, but she's kind of like the queen of the anthology film. She produced VHS, VHS Two, VHS viral southbound and xx and then she also um directed segments in southbound and xx oh and uh so i was really excited to see and creep show that's coming out soon she directed uh, the third episode of creep show so i was really excited to see her first feature she also co-produced two of my favorite films in recent years faults and the devil's candy so um i had high hopes for this i don't you've it dissuade me a tiny bit because I was I had I had high hopes for the bear specifically.
3: <laughs> if you if that's why you're going into the movie and and that is you know what I was expecting. I'll be honest, that's what I was expecting when I when I saw that the, you know and that's why the, the tone at the very beginning threw me a little bit, but that tone doesn't last. It, this, yeah. it does get more serious. Um, but if you're going in thinking it's going to be like a like a nature uh, survival na- exactly, it is survival to a point but the poster is probably one of the most misleading um, in recent years.
2: That's too bad. I love yeah. the premise, just a, a park ranger guarding a body. Yes. I mean, that's a really yes. cool idea.
3: It is, and, and that's handled really well. I liked the that middle chunk of the film going up to, towards the ending of it, actually. I, I really liked that. I didn't so much like the ultimate sort of reveal at the end, And the bear was a letdown, and the very beginning just tonally, because I was expecting something different. I mean, if you go in expecting that, it might be, you know. And now that uh, now uh, you spoiled it for all of us. Now that I've given it to you, (laughs) how the movie opens, the tone of it, uh, it might not bother uh, someone else as much as it did me, just because I was expecting something different. But because of the performance and the situation the character finds herself in, I think it's worth a watch. Nice. And then the other movie I was going to talk about, it is listed as horror on IMDb, and I can understand why. It is Lords of Chaos. It's listed as 2018, but it was not released in the U.S. until 2019, uh, in February of this year. And it is the story of Euronymous. And it's based on a true story, Euronymous, from the uh, Norwegian black metal band Mayhem. Credited as the founder of uh, norwegian black the black metal scene played very well by rory Culkin. actually i thought rory Culkin uh, did a, a a really strong job as, in the lead but anyway uh it's about what happens you know with this norwegian black metal how serious some people took it how less than serious other people took it what the what transpired from this group what they did and ultimately um the violence uh, that, that came about um, by, uh, by some of these. I mean, you have um, this character, he goes by the name of Varg, uh, played by Emery Cohen, uh, who starts out as uh, sort of being a fan of Euronymous, then becomes a, a peer. Euronymous sort of takes him under his wing. And eventually the two of them have a falling out because Varg is about as serious into the Norwegian black metal scene as you can get. And where he takes it, I think, is even beyond where uh, Uranimus had ever pictured it going. The movie is, uh, like I said, it's more of a biopic. It's more of a setup of this Norwegian black metal but the scene itself, as it's portrayed in the film, is, is really quite disturbing. Uh, there are two scenes of that I can recall, two scenes of violence, but both of them were very, very difficult to sit through because it is not just a quick moment of violence. It is a prolonged, the first one not as prolonged as the second one. Uh, that happens very late in the film. And uh, anybody who knows the true story of Euronymous will will know where it's going to go. But it's also what happens with this VAR character and what they do. They were into burning churches, and they don't shy away from that whole thing. They don't shy away from the satanic part. So it, it's I'm not familiar with the with Norwegian black metal scene, not at all. This all came as sort of something new to me. Uh, anybody out there with any familiarity... I don't know that the movie; what they might find the movie as disturbing. A character commits a murder because it's like, well, that's what we do in the in the in the black metal scene, <laughs> uh, and the nature of that murder. I should actually say, I'm sorry. There were three moments of violence, and all of them were prolonged because I forgot about the murder, and you do get to uh, you do get to see that. And the moments of violence in this movie are what really. I guess, got to me the most about it. It's one of those films. It's very well made. It's well acted and it's an interesting story, but it's also a little hard for me to recommend because of how dark it is. I mean, this is a pretty dark film and it just, it gets really, I guess the intensity just gets to the point that it's almost like, wow. Uh, You know, when it was done, I just kept turning it over and over and over in my head. I don't know if it will bother other people as much as it did me, but I'm going to give it an 8.5. But I'm going to say, you know, proceed with caution. Um, if, you're, if you don't know much about black metal or if you're not into that scene or even just metal or the sort of satanic worship type of things, if that's not really your type of movie, I'd say proceed with caution. But it is a very well-made movie, a very well-acted movie. And I was into it. I was interested th- the entire time. But I also found it quite disturbing. I mean, it it really just sort of shook me some moments in this movie. I got to give it a strong rating, but I also got to throw that little caveat in there that proceed with caution. Um, you know, and, and like, for instance, Joel, I don't know if I would recommend this for you, um, knowing your taste in films. Oh, but yeah. No, I just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, knowing, you know, we've had discussions off air about, you know, with with um, uh, some Rob Zombie films and and things like that. Uh, there are moments in this film that I think are really. They're a lot. They're a lot, and they go there with it. I mean, it, it's not something they shy away from. Um, but as far as as far as the movie itself goes, I'm imp- I was impressed. I really was. I thought it was very well made, and uh, yeah, I'd say eight point five. It's just. I can't just give it a flat recommend for everybody without throwing that, you know, throwing that out there. This is a movie
2: we've been teasing on the show since 2017 when we did our heavy metal horror episode, (laughs) because there had been this excellent documentary in 2008 that covered this story called until the light takes us. And I would highly recommend people check that out, especially if they want to know more about the Norwegian black metal scene before they, see the film um you can get that it's streaming for free right now on amazon prime um it's really great film Uh, there's a lot of controversy around lords of chaos because well for a few reasons uh you know so a lot of these guys i don't know how much it comes across in the movie i haven't seen it but um a lot of them are white supremacist kind of racist guys i don't know if there's a lot of that
3: in the film uh, it's touched on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely there. I don't know if it's as prevalent as other elements of their sort of, um, satanic uh, right. worship, but, uh, yeah, no, it's definitely touched on. So I guess the director of this film, he
2: was part of the Swedish metal scene and I guess they're kind of enemies <laughs> of the Norwegian metal scene. And, um, this director,
3: has had run-ins with with varg by the end of this film you're going to be surprised not only is varg um varg is now still making music and and i don't want to go too deep but i don't want to spoil anything for people who don't know the story right. um, but if you do know the story i was quite surprised to find out that varg is uh still making music after what goes down in this film
2: he's a white nationalist like racist and he has a lot of content where he kind of slyly tries to recruit people to (laughs) white nationalism Um, but you know so I think uh, one thing that was kind of slyly done here is that Jonas Ackerland, the director he intentionally cast a Jewish uh, actor to play Varg in the film
0: So <laughs> just, and he
3: was excellent. I gotta say he was excellent in the part. he really was. He, yeah he was right up there. I mean Rory Culkin did a great job, but Emery Cohen might have might have actually been uh, might have done a better job. He just doesn't play a very very likable character.
2: Yeah. so there's and there's a lot of um, controversy surrounding this film within the scene that it takes place in. But all of the American audiences that I know have seen it like at film festivals and stuff, who are into black metal, absolutely love this
0: movie. Mm-hmm.
2: This also features the Walter Skarsgard, who is Pennywise Bill Skarsgard's younger brother. You know, it's also Stellan
3: Skarsgard's son. It's a the big Skarsgard acting family. The whole cast was good. And Sky Ferreira is uh, uh has a part in it. Um, as a girlfriend, she was also, I guess, in the Green Inferno. Uh I'm yeah. oh, Baby Driver, and she was in Baby Driver too. And I think she, the whole cast is 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 strong. But I was really impressed, like I said, with Rory Culkin and and Emory Cohen, who basically play the two main characters in in the film. Um, and it's kind of a a movie for a while anyway, without anybody that I could identify with. But that doesn't usually bother me. I don't I don't I don't need to identify with somebody if it's telling a story that I find interesting and this did. So it's not like I said, well, I really need to identify with somebody here. That doesn't, you know, I know some people like that. It doesn't bother me at all not to identify with the characters. I think it eventually gets to that point. Well, at least with Euronymous. Yeah. I I don't know. This, this movie stayed with me for a few days after I saw it. And and I think the violence had something to do with it. Now I did see a director's cut of this. Mm. So I don't know what, might have uh, been added, I can guess. But I can't say for 100%. But it is, uh, you know, it, it makes me happy that I was not living in Norway when this was going on. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay.
3: Cool, man. Another 2019 film is uh, Bright Burn that I saw uh, fairly recently. The basic premise is, what if Superman was an a-hole? I guess is the best way to put this. Uh, It is the story of um, a family. Uh, One night, uh, a child falls from the sky in what appears to be a spaceship and they adopt him as their own. And everything seems to go well for a while as young Brandon. Um, Everything seems to go well for a while until young Brandon hits 12 years old. And um, not only are there these mysterious voices coming from the barn sort of guiding him, but he finds out something very, very important about himself and, and, what his perceived mission is on this planet. This is a, you know what I, at first I was, I found myself kind of wishing the movie was going a little bit further than it was with the Brandon character and, and what, you know, once you find out what he's capable of and it really is sort of Superman level stuff, you start to think, well, he could, you know, I didn't know that the movie was definitely, I was, I was hoping it would go further, but then I realized this is really like an origin story is what this movie is. This is an origin story for this, this, this character and, as it got later and later, I found myself, boy, I really kind of hope, and I don't know if they ever will, I really kind of hope that they do a bright burn too, because I would like to see this character almost at the the Clark Kent age, you know, going out to work and and seeing what he's what he might do because most of it is most of what's going on is sort of centered on this small town that he lives in. Um, and of course, he was brought up on a farm much like much like Superman. So this is almost. It's basically Bizarro <laughs> Superman. Yeah, it's like the anti-Superman here. Bizarro, yeah, exactly. And that's what you get from this character. So for a lot of the movie, I'm kind of wanting more until I realize, hey, if, if this is like an origin story and they can do a Brightburn 2, I really would like to see a Brightburn 2 now. Now that we've got this origin story sort of, no, I won't even say out of the way because I did enjoy the film. And I, I do think it's it's worth uh, it's worth seeing. I would. I was just thinking as it was going. It's like, geez, once he once he makes this realization. And I liked how he made the realization too. There's a really cool scene uh, uh, with a lawnmower. I, I really I like that. <laughs> yeah. That was sort of his first eye opening uh, uh, as to, wow, what am I? Um, but I I enjoyed it. I thought it was. I thought it was uh, as an origin story, especially. I really enjoyed it. I kick it over to you, Joel.
1: Yeah. Now. I believe, Dave, you've seen this relatively recently. I saw it the weekend it came out. So, oh, okay, so back in May. Yeah, it's yeah. Been, it's been a minute. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I I think the key thing is I remember a couple of key moments, and I remember liking it, but not loving it. And mm-hmm. I I liked the idea. I lo- conceptually, I liked the idea of evil Superman, Elizabeth Banks did a great job i mean the performances obviously the kid who plays brandon he's the superman of the piece and you know he's really effective but and i don't know if it was because i remember i'd see this is one of those where i'd seen the trailer and i feel like the trailer gave a bit quite a bit away uh Mm -hmm. as well and I, i i love the idea of it and there were some moments in the movie one specifically involving a truck Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was so brutal.
3: Uh, oh my God! I, I I I couldn't. I almost had to look away. Yeah, it was bordering on saw that. What
1: happened? In the, yeah, that was rough. Now this was written by James Gunn, correct? Ryan and Mark Gunn are the writers. Okay, his brothers wrote it. He produced it. That's what it was. And I mean, it doesn't quite obviously go to the same heights as like a, a Slither or something like that with you know James Gunn's uh, humor. But I guess I could, you could kind of. Sense it. I mean, there were there were certain things in it, as I recall. Conceptually, I liked it more than the execution. The only catch to me saying that is, I feel like I want to see it one more time. My leaning to it recommendation is to give it like a six point five. But okay. I, I would I would like to go back and rewatch it again because I almost wonder if by because after what you were saying, it's like you know I feel like I don't know if it was just when we went and saw it, you know, because you know things happen and and life happens, and sometimes you go to a movie and you've got a certain attitude and frame of mind and it affects how you see the movie. So I, I would like to revisit this is one that I liked it enough that I would want to rewatch it again. Um right. but but I, I think what it was to endeavor unsettled me, I think is the to the degree that I, I was sort of expecting to because I mean just again that idea of you know if this creature was on Earth and and it decided it didn't want to, you know, be for Truth, justice, and uh, whatever—you <laughs> uh, right. know—we'd be in trouble, like big trouble. Which I right. guess is sort of the, you know, the point of, of a Batman versus Superman. That was essentially the, the argument that uh, Batman was making—that um, uh, you got to be real careful when you have somebody this powerful. So yeah. it's effective. The kid is creepy. It gets creepier as as it goes when yes. he realizes
3: what he is, and when he when he sort of deciphers the message, which isn't an alien language. Uh, He gets to the point where he just sort of uh, stops caring, maybe, Mm -hmm. Yes. like he did before. Uh, And I will say I was with you for a a large part of the film. I was kind of wanting more as well. Uh, And I did like the story for a while, a little more than the execution, until it sort of hit me that, boy, if they did a Brightburn 2, then I would look at this one a little differently because it's an origin story.
1: Yes, I, I think I, you know what. Thank you for saying that. That was the issue for me. This you you think back to the original uh, Superman, you know Richard Donner Superman movie, right? You had this the the whole uh, you know sequence with young Clark and all that last way, like the first five ten minutes of the movie whatever it is, and then we jump ahead to you know Christopher Reeve and everything. Since yeah. this movie is just that beginning and just that setup it feels a little, even though it's a relatively short movie, I think it was under an hour and a half. It feels a little, um, just an hour, exactly an hour and a half, yeah. but that's with credit. So yeah, right. And it feels a little dragged out. And I think the other thing that I remember kind of, and it's a petty thing in the grand scheme of things, because I think that the look that the kid has, where he has that mask and all that looks creepy, but it kind of hit me. I was like, once he realizes what he's capable of, right. And once mm-hmm. he realizes he no longer gives a crap, why does he bother putting all that on? Why what, what is the intent of hiding who he is? Like no one can stop him. Why does Batman Batman's a human being him? and he and he has to protect his identity? That's the difference. No, that's wrong. He's a bat to strike
3: fear into the oh, heart.
1: Okay, really. And,
3: and I think I think that was what this might have been more like this this kid was. That's how I took it anyway. I wasn't looking that he was hiding anymore because there's a scene where in a closet where <laughs> Uh, he even lets himself be unmasked. Sure. Sure. You know, so I don't know that it was, I think it was more for an effect and the fact that he would leave that symbol, Mm -hmm. um, at at everything. And, um, I didn't even realize what it was. It was the sheriff who pointed it out to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) when he made the connection. I'm like, Oh, isn't that interesting? But you know, I, and I, for a while, for a portion of the movie, I'm not disagreeing with you because I had those same feelings.
2: Listening to you guys, it sounds like basically what Unbreakable is. And you know, when you see a film like Glass, you say, "Well, it was fine, but maybe
1: I was should have just left it at the origin story." And <laughs> almost, but to Dave's point, I almost feel like this is the reverse. Like it, it, it would have been better had we not necessarily gotten all of the origin. I get feel like this is all origin, and it's. Yeah. It's just too much, like they're trying to pad out something that didn't need to necessarily be, I mean, I don't know where they would have taken it, obviously, but uh, I don't know, I guess, like, 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 for instance, the, I guess the implication, and Dave, correct me if I'm wrong without giving anything away about the ending of the movie, but the implication by the end of it is that now all these sort of mysterious things are happening.
3: But they're still happening in that community he hasn't taken it to a wider level yet because he's not i'm looking at it that he's not of an age to know, you know, the i guess the sort of he's 12 sure in the movie and he's not of an age to know the the scope yeah of what exactly he could do. I mean, he sort of draws a picture of it. But even even in those scenes at the end, which I was fascinated by, when it got to that point, I'm like, man, I wish that, I almost wish that the movie would sort of, like you were saying, pick up from here, but maybe if they do it with a break burn too, because that's when it was getting really fascinating, but it was still in that community or the outlying area. He hadn't it's not like you were getting reports from Tokyo and New York and all this other stuff. It was this area. Um, that all of these things were, were going on. And I wanted to see how that would grow with now that he knows what he's here to do or he thinks he knows what he's here to do, how would that grow? How would he take it to that next level as he got older, as he got wiser, as he got a little more experience with the world? And would he get that experience because he's a, he's a character who at 12 no longer gives a damn? about what anybody around him so would he even have associations with people would he even feel the need to do that would he feel the need to hide this identity what would he do and and because he obviously didn't feel the need to stay out of sight there are pictures of him and you know the ending of the movie sort of ends with news reports and there's pictures of him everywhere would you know would it would it I'd love to see where this. I really, really wish. I really hope well, they do don't, a breakthrough. Well, yeah. Don't get five. your
1: hopes up too high on that because it, it, I know because it didn't make enough. It, it didn't did, did make. But here's the thing: the, the budget was considering what they pulled. The budget off, was only six. With what they pulled off for that, that's that impressive. Is amazing. That is super impressive. But and it did make thirty something worldwide. So I mean, it yeah more than five times its budget. But mm-hmm. I don't know if that's enough for them to feel like they could just maybe a straight to video thing or something for Netflix or something. I could see them maybe doing that.
2: Well, mm-hmm. now that James Gunn is working for DC as well as Marvel, maybe they'll throw Brightburn in the next uh Justice League movie. That's what they need is a good villain in the Justice League movie.
1: Yeah, twelve year old oh, kid yeah, with but... a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see him fight Wonder Woman. He'd he'd lose. He'd lose. <laughs> uh so so uh dave did you say what your rating
3: for brightburn would be i'm, I'm gonna give it as am gonna give it a seven okay um uh, possibly 7.5 on a rewatch but i'm gonna go with a seven now um and say it's 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 worth a rental as uh and 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 go into it as an origin story i mean don't well, and how are you guys classifying this on the horror spectrum? Uh, Is it pretty light? I'm assuming. Uh yeah, yeah. It's it's well, you know what though. There are there are moments. I mean, the the, the, the aforementioned truck scene. Aforementioned <laughs> truck scene. Yeah. There's a scene set in a diner. Yes. Another very cringeworthy. Yeah, and, moment.
1: and that's a good example because don't see the trailer because that trailer gives literally a pretty much that whole scene away. I mean, the yes,
3: whole. Yes, that, that's a shame. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, so, yeah, avoid But when the you trailer. know who that character is, it even adds another dimension yes, to it. Yes, exactly. Honestly, it is got me really excited about this. Good.
1: <laughs> well, I, and I think I feel better about my 6.5 that says yours was a 7, Dave, because I think with a rewatch, I might come up higher. And I'd say on the spectrum, the other way to look at it is that it's a dark, dark comic book movie. You know yes. what I mean? Like, that's what I would say it is. It's a dark, it's a dark, dark comic book movie with horror movie elements to it. And the fact that the kid is creepy. And I think the fact that the kid was the exact same age as my oldest son, I, I sort of went in anticipating that I'd find that far creepier, <laughs> you know, a little more relatable, but I, for whatever reason, it just didn't ever really affect me that way. Uh, but it was, it, it worked for what it was. And I think if you like comic books, if you like, you know, dark or er, comic book stories. If you like some pretty good uh, gore effects here and there, I think you'll enjoy it. And mm-hmm. I always wonder what it would look like if Superman went full bore flying into a human body. And now I know. Right. <laughs> All right. Now I know. <laughs> All right.
2: Sounds cool. All right. Well, one film that I'd like to mini review before we move into our it spoilers and listener feedback Is called Under the Silver Lake. This is another one that's been on my radar for quite a long time. It came out in April. It is not in any way strictly a horror film. Uh, It's a stretch to even be talking about on this podcast, except for the fact that it was directed by David Robert Mitchell, who also directed It Follows, and tonally it has a bit of a feel of It Follows. Now, it is streaming for free with your Prime membership on... Amazon Prime. So uh, it's easy to check out if you think you might be interested in it. Really quickly from the IMDb synopsis, Sam, played by Andrew Garfield, is a disenchanted young man. He finds a mysterious woman swimming in his apartment's pool one night. The next morning she disappears and Sam sets off across Los Angeles to find her. Along the way, he uncovers a conspiracy that is far
3: more bizarre.
2: So terrible synopsis by IMDB, but that kind of describes the movie.
3: And that's why I was I I was going to go to IMDB's synopsis for a couple of the movies I did tonight, and it just wasn't worth it. It, it. You know, sometimes it's it's like I say, it's eight words and seven of them don't even relate to the movie. Let me let me read
2: this one. This one is from Amazon Prime. It says, a man tries to find the parties responsible for his beautiful neighbor's disappearance, unraveling a string of crimes, murders, and bizarre coincidences in his East L.A. neighborhood. It's just a really interesting movie that I wanted to talk about. People either love this or hate this. It is kind of a mess. It's all over the place. The film that I would most closely relate it to would be Inherent Vice, the Paul Thomas Anderson film that was also kind of much maligned. It it feels like heavy on Inherent Vice with a sprinkling of Mulholland Drive You can also see elements of Rear Window, Vertigo, The Long Goodbye, Chinatown, Repo Man, Big Lebowski, Summer of Sam, Brick, The Black Dahlia, Greenberg, and A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III. Those are all the films that came to mind, and it does seem a little bit all over the place. You can see, yeah, it has a definite noir, -noir, neo-noir vibe but it it really draws from a lot of different types of influences and goes all over Los Angeles and explores Los Angeles in a way that I don't know that any movie ever really has to this extent. It's got some really interesting locations and ideas that are explored here, but it, man, it is all over the place. It is such a strange film Um, It's just filled to the brim with pop culture and in fact itself is kind of this pop cultural artifact because it has so many lines of cinematic references that you only a true cinephile could ever hope to kind of unravel it and really (laughs) understand what it's referencing it also ends the last third of the movie or maybe the last fourth of the movie is really challenging. It changes tones so completely at the end of the movie, you're just kind of like, huh? And yeah, what does it all mean is a question that the characters and the audience, I think, are asking through much of the film. And when it gets to the end, you're waiting for some big grand explanation and the movie doesn't give that to you. You kind of have to be okay with it just being what it is on face value. It is really the journey and not the destination. I thought it was interesting. Everything here, you know, people are talking about it like it is um, just extremely self-indulgent or that it's anarchistic in terms of its storytelling or lack thereof and willingness to kind of abuse its audience in that way. But I think um, it's so meticulously put together every frame, every shot, the music, every prop and background detail. It's so carefully put together, like to the level of a Terry Gilliam film or Quentin Tarantino film. You can tell this guy really cares about what he's putting up on screen. So I think it's too easy to kind of dismiss it as being meaningless. It certainly is not meaningless. I think Andrew Garfield's performance is incredible. This is the best thing I've ever seen him in, and I like him generally, and I just was just blown away by him in this. Um, This is definitely not for everybody. Again, this is kind of like a crime, noir, paranoid, conspiracy thriller. But um, if that sounds interesting to you, if you like uh, kind of a Sam Spade type of story, but don't mind it being as a little more incoherent, like something like The Long Goodbye, then I think you'll enjoy Under the Silver Lake.
3: I've seen the trailer several times, and it looks like uh, something I really want to see. And your comparison with Mulholland Drive, I think, is an interesting one. Mulholland drive is one of those films that I know David Lynch has sort of given clues to figuring it out. I'm sure there is a solution to what's going on. I've never gotten to it, but yet (laughs) I find that movie absolutely mesmerizing it. I don't even care if I ever figure it out. There are part, there are sequences in that film that are so uh, engaging that I'll just keep going back and watching and watching. And I don't know that, like I said, I don't know that I want to ever figure it out because in this case, you know, I, I, I think I said in, in my review of it that, um, you know, this is uh, one of those things, this is one of those puzzles that looks just as good in pieces as it does when you put it together. And I think that's Mulholland drive. And maybe it would be, it sounds like it might be under the silver Lake as well. And so that has me even more interested to see it.
2: Yeah, this one's more beautiful in its pieces than it is as it's when it's put together. But I think and and on the spectrum, I would say it's probably closer to Inherent Vice than Mulholland Drive. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I think they inhabit that same kind of delirious Los Angeles. And that makes it kind of a PM. But I think the thing that's frustrating a lot of audiences is it feels like it's a puzzle to be figured out. And I think at the end there are a lot of questions, and the movie does not attempt to really answer those questions. It's kind of about going on this journey with this character. And I think it would be a lot more satisfying if that all added up to something that, you know, that people could find meaning in and I think you just have to find meaning in the journey.
3: Okay. Nice.
1: All right, so before we go into the it spoiler talk dave we don't want to spoil it for you so uh. yes
3: i do not i do, you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna avoid everything i can about this movie now until i can finally <laughs> see it whenever it comes out i'm hoping it's sooner than later but i know it's going on I got, I got i'm gonna have to wait a few months to see it and it's it's killing me i have been waiting for two years for this movie and it just happens to release at a time in my life where i cannot sit in the theater for three hours um just because of what i'm going through and it sucks I am going to try to avoid spoilers for as long as I can. I would say at least hopefully the, some of the audience reaction you're seeing
2: is letting a little bit of the air out so that mm-hmm. you – because I think there is some disappointment. I think this is a movie that if you compare it to it Chapter 1, you're mm-hmm. probably going to be disappointed. If you compare it okay. to the second half of it 1990 – they'll probably be pleasantly surprised.
1: I think that's accurate. <laughs>
3: and that's, yeah, because I am not a fan of the second half. I even think um, Tim Curry becomes less scary in the second half and becomes more um, like an over-the-top sort of clown. He's not as frightening in the second half to me as he was in the first half. So there's that plus the direction that 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 second half goes. I was not a fan of the second half of, uh, of the 1990 It that's why i was looking forward to this one to sort of see how they handle it and just from what i'm hearing from you guys you know without spoilers it seems like they handled it better even if it's not perfect it seems like they handled it better than they did um the 90 version
2: yes but i'll just say i think some of those concerns you had were probably inherent to the material
1: okay i think it's fair all right so dave you want to tell everybody where they can find you online
3: yeah, absolutely. Um, check me out at DVDinfatuation.com. Uh, I got my reviews out there. I'm on Twitter at DVDinfatuation. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Letterboxd, uh, other podcasts. Uh, we Deal in Lead. It looks like we do have a solid idea to come back with that um, for another episode. Uh, as we do the uh, Gods and Monsters, Universal Monsters cast, uh, especially with the Blumhouse getting involved with bringing these classic monsters back to the screen. The Invisible Man has just wrapped, as I understand it. hmm So that's exciting. Yes, absolutely, and I'm looking forward to that uh, and getting that podcast back up and going again. And uh, you can also hear me uh, regularly on Land of the Creeps, and uh, that is at landofthecreeps.blogspot.com
1: all right so we're going to move into the listener feedback section uh, specifically a listener feedback related to it chapter two the vast majority of which is spoiler free uh, but since wolfman here will be reading off the feedback if he comes across something that we deem spoilery you will be warned uh, as needed
2: yeah and you know i think what we could do is just hold that till the end and then use that as a transition into our spoiler
1: discussion. Sure. That makes sense.
2: Okay. So I did put a call out to all losers on Twitter for anyone who has seen it chapter two on opening weekend. We wanted their spoiler free reactions and ratings. And so this is some of the feedback that we got. This is from Sean Taylor. He says, normally I want a movie to be as long as possible. I felt most of these three hours been a while since I read the book, but I'm sure they added new scenes. The F word was overused almost annoyingly. So cast was great. And I did like it overall great visuals needed better editing. My wife and I both give it a seven out of 10. Dark Mark says, I loved Pennywise such an iconic monster, great casting, acting, shooting and sound slash score. I didn't mind the length, but it feels like the narrative retreads part one, just as adults. I feel the same way about the 1990 version. Never read. The book 7.5 out of 10. And that's what I agree with Mark. That's kind of what I was saying. Mm-hmm. It's kind of retreading the same narrative yes. features rather than kind of dealing with adult fears. Although again, you know, some oftentimes our childhood scars lead to the shame and, and fears of adults, but, um, I think it could have been maybe more effective if they could have figured out something that could scare the adults currently. Mark says also the bullying in it is horrifying. Often in horror, the real monsters are the humans, but Pennywise kills whether you're the bully or bullied. He's no mercy monster. Greg bench says solid companion piece to the first film. Loads of fun and frights. CGI had some fractures in the presentation, both in de aging and creature. The runtime was long, Loved the scares, but so many jump scares. I began to feel exhausted and worn out. Sometimes less is better eight out of ten <laughs> bloody cab jack says nine out of ten they're not as good as the first some story threads and changes i didn't like stan postscript felt off
1: uh, meaning i think he meant well and that of course would be a spoiler thing but i guess tor- for towards the very end of the movie there's something uh involving stan folks i, I think- actually really disliked
2: the kind of underlying message of that even though i think it's I don't know. We could talk about that sure, a little bit sure. more in spoilers if we remember. Grave Roberts says, fun scares, but some of the CGI hurt it. Still not a fan of the final confrontation, but better executed than the original. I mean, the 1990 version, I guess.
1: Way better than the 1990 version. <laughs>
2: Great job on flushing out the Losers Club members and further adult Eddie stole the show. I guessed right what was behind the very scary door. Beep, beep, nine out of ten. Jody horror says eight out of 10 seeing it again on Monday. Biggest complaint is some CGI effects that I didn't care for and took me out of the moment and that I know will not hold up in 10 years.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's like what we're talking about.
2: Yeah. And and I actually responded to that. I said, was it the digital de-aging on the kids? That's what bothered me most. Some of the other over the top CGI was bad too, but that was also in the first chapter. So I was expecting it. And Jody says, there's definitely a thing of CGI, not holding up. I'm rewatching about 140 of my favorites from the decade to get my top 100 list ready and fright night and final destination five look pretty bad now. And that was just in 2011. So that's, yeah, I mean, that isn't a really unfortunate thing about CGI. And I, I, I know it come off as a CGI hater. I think that it can be used well. But I I think especially like in a case like this, where it already looks a little sketchy now, there's no way it's going to hold up even in like three to five years. Yeah,
1: well, it's interesting too. And I feel like we should probably maybe dedicate an entire bonus or something just to that discussion, the psychology of why is it when we oftentimes will, like he brought up Fright Night or Final Destination 5, when those movies first came out, I don't know, maybe people were complaining about it then, but let's just go on the assumption maybe they weren't. Because I know there's some movies that come out when they come out. And people feel like, oh, this is so state of the art; it's so revolutionary. But then something happens, and maybe it's just the comparison over time to act—you know—the new technologies as they develop that we then look back on it. We're like, yeah, that just doesn't. We're sort of like when you, you know, when we you look at a, a phone, a cell phone in Scream. At the time Scream came out, those those phones were the phone. You look at them now, right? <laughs> and it feels that technology feels more dated so See,
2: i don't mind that type of technological inclusion i know a lot sure. of people make fun of like the thing for example for the computer that they're sure. using i like that because it kind of anchors it in place i think cj is a little bit different for me because like for instance blue crush to use a non-horror example i just recently re-watched that and i remember that was kind of breakthrough at the time because they have these pro f- surfer women And they took Kate Bosworth's face Mm -hmm. and did a face replacement. So it looked like she was surfing the wave. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time people were like, wow, that's crazy. How do they do that? And I saw the other day going in with the mindset, like, oh yeah, that this is like the first digital face replacement I remember hearing about. And I was just like,
1: oh, that looks bad. That looks really, really bad. But (laughs) you know one I think that holds up still is in Jurassic Park when Lex goes through the uh, the, yeah. She falls through the ceiling and that was a stunt woman. And then she looks up and it, they put her face over it, and it. It still holds up. And to me, the the weirdest thing is how other than just a couple of little moments at Jurassic Park, having rewatched that on the big screen within the last couple of years, it still holds up exceptionally. I think it's the mix. I think it's the mix yeah. of, of the animatronic, the real with the CGI.
2: Like you can tell that the CGI brontosaurus is a CGI brontosaurus, but it still looks better than a lot of movies being made today, today by contrast, you know, the first CGI film I was aware of young Sherlock Holmes that Spielberg produced that I remember being mind blown by that one when I first saw it. And now when I see it, I'm like, ah, yeah, I mean, that's pretty bad, Yeah, (laughs) but but I don't know there. I I, I think back to my point, I think if you can tell the time it's bad, it's just, that's not a good sign okay so barely ashley says i did like it i didn't love it i need a rewatch some of the effects were silly and too obviously cgi there were some amazing moments though and it's worth a theater viewing three hours is excruciating for me to sit through 7.5 <laughs> out of 10 right there with you raul who by the way i want to give a shout out to raul he wore his horror movie podcast t-shirt to the screening and took a photo of himself in front of the it poster and his hmp shirt Looking very handsome, Raul, and uh, thanks for representing HMP. He says, this movie was so much better than I thought it would be. The most fun I've had at the movies all year. I don't get scared in movies, but this got me. 9.5 out of 10, but it could honestly be a 10. My number two movie of the year. Watch it, then watch it again. So, very enthusiastic response from Raul.
1: Whenever there's a movie, because I wanted to love it that much. And so I'm a little envious that that was his response, because I think that, you know, I'm serious, because I think that, (laughs) you know, the fact that he feels because it's also subjective. I mean, you can't say whether someone's right or wrong and how they feel about a movie. So the fact is, though, I I wish I had had that reaction. I had more of Ashley's reaction, (laughs) but I I wish I had had his reaction. I think you and Ashley always have the same reaction. I think we do. I I, am definitely (laughs) a a kindred spirit there. I definitely feel that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay, so this is from chris excess he said i loved it all caps i think these two movies are the best movie adaptation of king's
1: work ever
2: and i don't think i'd go quite I that far i wouldn't go that far yeah, i
1: wouldn't go that far but <laughs> they're good but it's close yeah, they're good i mean it's up there it's yeah. in
2: the conversation yes the davy dave or david fear he says for me this was quite a bit better than chapter one i can't say enough about the casting with the exception of maybe mcavoy The adult actors look like grown-up versions of the child actors also the thing wink 8.5 out of 10. (laughs) yeah love the reference to the thing and actually a little behind the scene thing um when Andy muschietti was describing to the cast what the monster was going to look like in the scene uh, with the head let's just say uh bill hader being kind of a movie nerd said oh so it's gonna look like the thing yeah. And, uh, he's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he goes, okay, well, what if I use the line from the thing? And they actually on set, Googled it on, uh-huh. and found the YouTube clip and got that line reaction from the thing and mm-hmm. then did it live on set. Yeah.
1: Which I, so, I mean, in our spoiler section, if we have the opportunity. I would, I'd like to address that. Cause I think that is a primo example of comparing wh- a version that was done practically to a version that was done mm. through CGI. And the question yeah. really is, you know, what's more effective, uh, overall right. as an effect
2: Trey, Whetstone says, I loved it. Not as good as part one, but still a great film. The cast is fantastic. And I love the heart that it has. There were a few truly frightening moments, but it could have used more. Couldn't help, but feel at home while watching kind of like horror comfort food for me. And I agree with King's films generally, uh, and, and books generally feel like kind of horror comfort food to me. So I see where a trace came from on that. Joe Brunette said, nothing can beat this incredible cast. I had so much fun watching them all together. A few decent scares, but none that lived up to the first one. Still not convinced that film could ever do this book justice. I wonder if they'll ever attempt to remake it again in the future. Six out of 10.
1: I say yes. <laughs> I think that 10, 15 years from now, there'll be maybe seven years from now. No, 27 years from now. You know, Good call. There will be either, whatever the Netflix equivalent, I don't want to make this assumption, it'll still be around, but whatever that is, there'll there'll be something. I just, I have a feeling.
2: I also have heard Bill Skarsgård say that he has considered doing it, chapter three, that would be some kind of additional Pennywise tale. So maybe a prequel. And I, because of just the success of these particular films, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that we'll get a non-canonical Uh, Pennywise movie. Veronica Stewart says my review go. And she posted a photo of her and her daughter at the film, which is awesome. Johnny Larkin from the screaming Queens queer horror podcast says messy meandering and in need of a good edit, just like the book, but I enjoyed it. I'm glad they kept the opening attack in nothing captures the insidious evil of dairy quite like that moment. And it would have been cowardly to cut it. Alison Clark AKA the horror unicorn. She says, I enjoyed it. Chapter two, but didn't connect with it as much as chapter one. The adult casting really worked for the film and the haunted fun house elements were great, but I think there were pacing issues and the usual overuse of CGI. This was a 7.5 for me. I'm noticing a theme, Josh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sean Gorman says someone needs to inform horror directors. that jump scares are startling, but they're not scary and they lose all their effectiveness after the first viewing. I don't think that's totally true. I We've talked about this before. We're both fans of jump scares to some degree. I think they can become exhausting. I think it was Greg that said that in his comment. I feel like um, the nun from last year was one that really made that clear to me. And I, I would say it's Chapter 2 definitely walks that line as well. They can... We're out there welcome. And mm-hmm. I have never liked cheap jump scares. You know, Dr. Shock always uses the cat example. Yes. But I think a well motivated jump scare is awesome mm-hmm. if done well. And I think, like, the one I always think of from It Chapter One, where Pennywise comes out of the projector. Oh, yeah. That is one of the scariest moments that will haunt my nightmares for the rest of my life.
1: By the way, Am I a bad father because the kids walked in when Heather and I were watching the movie and it was right at the beginning of that scene when the projector starts taking <laughs> over, you know, and, the, and you oh. see the, the mother's hair and I didn't pause it right away because they were like, they came in, they were kind of, because oh, they, they knew what we were watching and I yeah. paused it like right when it's about to make the reveal. That's all they saw. It was just that because of, of course the way the kids are reacting all two of the three. Were telling me like for like an hour and a half later, I just, I kept people at my door, dad, dad, why, why was, why was her face changing? Dad? What was it? Just, just that. They didn't even see. And I'd forgotten how intense it really gets. And then, and then when it plays out, my wife looked at me like, Oh, you were so lucky you paused it. <laughs> you
2: are, <yeah. laughs> That's so funny. Sean Gorman goes further. He says, walked into the theater halfway through something I haven't done since Peter Jackson's King Kong corny dialogue ridiculous CGI predictable jump scares just so boring I really enjoyed part one what the
1: hell happened here I don't think it's that bad Sean I mean everyone's entitled to their opinion that's no but seriously that's I mean I I've only walked out of a couple movies in my entire life one of which was uh Blair Witch 2 um just (laughs) because it was so inanely stupid I couldn't handle it but uh to the to that point I mean look if it doesn't work for you it doesn't work for you I feel like I'd be curious to know if he ever watched the original miniseries, or has read the book, because I think if you've done either of those things, you'd have a better sense of what you were in for. Maybe whereas if you, maybe- you have
2: more patience, you definitely wouldn't walk out because you would be at least interested to see how they mm-hmm. adapted it. But um you know, teach their own. Uh, that's a really I would say that's probably the most extreme reaction we got though. Poe movies says it was too long, not scary. It was still very fun. Loved the turtle reference.
3: Turtle turtle. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I caught that too.
2: Adam says, it was good. I thought it was less scary than the first, and the peril of the children being chased by a monster was undercut by the main characters now being adults. 6.5 out of 10. See it in theaters if you're a fan of Stephen King films or you're a completist, otherwise strong rental. Halloween year round says, they need to invent an Oscar for best casting and give it to this movie. <laughs> it's downright scary how much these actors look like those kids, but older.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> like, couldn't agree yeah. more, man. It was really, really well done.
2: Absolutely. Horfan Ryan says, not as great as the first part of the series, but still a good, very well done movie. Bill Hader gives probably the best performance. Needed more scares and more Pennywise, in my opinion. Oliver Oakes says, way better than expected. Funny, fun, full of scares, though not very scary. A great follow up to chapter one. Great to see Deputy So and So back on the screen, in spirit, if not in name. Nine out of 10. Deputy So and So, of course, being James Ransom's character from Sinister. Mm-hmm. End of Dave's says great actors, poor writing, mess, special effects, unnecessary changes, ridiculous, bloated climax. The boogie brand says while certain CGI elements did not work very well, adult casting and performances, particularly Bill Hader, who deserves an Oscar nomination along with both emotional and funny beats help hold audience attention for the lengthy runtime until the arrival of a mostly satisfying conclusion. Eight out of 10 Slashly G says, I really enjoyed it. My only complaints are the CGI and the runtime was far too long. Thought it did justice as a part two. Jessica Chastain was also fabulously cast. Somehow the old lady scenes still work despite it being featured heavily in the trailer. I agree. Those old lady scenes were terrifying.
1: Yeah, but again, that's one of those I wish I hadn't seen. I wish I went to this movie cold because the first time I saw that in the trailer, I thought it was super creepy. After seeing the trailer through the beginning of multiple movies and then seeing it in the final movie, I mean, other than the reveal of what she looks like when she's you know, running, which again, if you've seen the trailer, it's no big deal. I mean, you've, you've seen it. Um, it really wasn't, it was all the same. So yeah, another, another Hmm. strike against trailers.
2: Yeah. Roberta Seaport says I didn't find it scary either chapter and it got more corny and sentimental than I would have liked without ever quite reaching the heart clenchy bittersweetness of the book. But the casting of the adult losers was perfect and there were some really cool design and action sequences. Alex Harrow says "Loved chapter one, but chapter two was a letdown had good moments and the ending was good, but overall not much happened. Xena says loved it. Kept the tone from the first one. Made me love the losers even more than I did. Did a good job invoking nostalgia. CGI won't age well. And Pennywise was underused overall nine out of 10. Xena also says, I don't want to be too spoilery, but just let me add that I appreciated the LGBTQ plus representation, even if it wasn't in happy form. And we will return to that in a second with more comments from Xena. Willis Wheeler says, I love the movie. It was so much fun. Fun to hear from Willis. I miss miss having Willis on the show. We need to see if we can get him back. Clint Ware says, I actually enjoyed it more than part one. Sure, there are jump scares, but it hardly ruins the film. It's fun, funny at times, and even at three hours long, I never once felt bored. I'd recommend it 8.5 out of 10. Allison Jones says, I enjoyed it not as a horror movie, but as a dramedy. It had horrific moments, but the movie captured the sadness I felt when I read the book as an adult. It chapter one depicts the horror one feels as a child, adults dismissing you and feeling like everything is life and death. Doug McCarthy says, I didn't enjoy it chapter two at all. It pains me to say this. Is something wrong with me?
1: No. <laughs> I guess. No, because I I You're fine. But no, I, cause I feel like you could go either way on this movie that I, and it's, it's one of, it's not a movie that's all are going to love it or all are going to hate it or one extreme or the other. I mean, I feel like I'm right there in that in-between land. Um, but I, I could see why somebody who maybe had a little experience with the book or the miniseries coming into this might feel very frustrated. I could see why somebody who was a fan of the source material or or that original film still feeling frustrated because there is a lot of stuff here to make you frustrated at the other on the flip side of that i can also see why there are some folks that are gaga over it i get it i mean it really just does it's also so subjective
2: (laughs) right okay now we're getting into some of the more lgbtq plus focused comments and we do kind of start going into spoiler territory so i'd like to do is kind of have our discussion and then intersperse some of these comments from our listeners. Now, so originally, we had two kind of spoilery comments on my original post on Twitter, Mm -hmm. and they were from very different perspectives on the gay representation.
1: And so can we just say then, from here on out, anybody listening who, for whatever reason, hasn't seen it chapter two yet, which I'm going to assume that most people have who are listening up to this point, we are going to just talk about the movie without any filter so be prepared right
2: so for people who don't know we actually recorded this spoiler section the next day after mm-hmm. last night's recording and between then and now i put a call out on twitter and I just hey if we have any friends in the lgbtq plus community we would love to hear your opinions on adrian mellon and richie tozier mm-hmm I just wanted to kind of get the temperature of people who we're friends with and in our, in our community. I'm not asking them to represent the entire community as like any community. They're not a monolith and not everyone's going to feel the same about it, but I kind of just wanted to see how people were feeling about it. Cause I was seeing pretty extreme reactions from both sides. I say both sides. There are a lot of sides to this issue, but I was seeing both from people who I would label as more homophobic kind of strong reactions, or even if you're not homophobic, people who love the book or love the first movie saying, we didn't need this change in this character. This is not a good change to the character. And then I saw a very wide spectrum of responses from the queer community who were saying, this is not a good representation. This is a, a bad representation queer folks on screen and i feel like again i don't want to speak for everyone but i feel like horror fans within the queer community seem to get this more and the people who i was seeing stronger reactions from weren't necessarily horror fans first you know it was kind of like if this is such a popular film you're seeing reactions from a lot of people you normally wouldn't see reactions to about horror movies Mm -hmm. So that was my take, but again, we'll read some of these comments. I just want to say what I'm about to read right now is not going to make everyone happy. And I understand that. And I just kind of wanted to let people know how broad the reaction to this film is, and particularly the gay coded scenes. So here we go. This is from Benny George. He says, I loved it. To be honest, it was the perfect runtime, brilliant casting, great cameo from Stephen King splitting up and going to locations bit, which was in the book, was 100% the best bit. It was actually pretty scary, too. Just a shame they had to ruin it with political correctness. And so being one to never shy away from opening a totally pointless can of worms, I said, interesting, what part was ruined with political correctness? And I was genuinely curious what he was referring to. I said, are you referring to the part in the book where the boys all have sex with Bev? So that's something that I... um hinted at earlier in our discussion, but the oath that they make, which is a blood oath in in the movie, in Stephen King's original novel, they basically have an orgy in the sewers. And um, so I was curious if, you know, that had been left out of every film adaptation of it. And I was wondering if that was what he was referring to.
1: Boy, I hope he said no.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He says, I'm referring to the Richie thing. Don't want to spoil it. I'm not against it as a subject at all, but it kind of spoiled the character a little for me see this is actually totally reasonable as i'm reading it back
1: yeah i, I feel like it, i guess if you're coming at it from the perspective which it's and i'm, I'm obviously reading a lot into this but yeah. if you're coming at it from the perspective of the character in the book is not gay and the implication in the movie is that he is at uh, i i don't i guess my further question would be how does that spoil it so okay well let's Let's go a little bit further into this comment. And I
2: think he says, there was absolutely no need for it. And it's just like they were trying to make it popular by adding that. So I said, I'm not sure about that. That's been read into these characters since the book came out. And there is, in fact, a lot of fan discussion over the years that Eddie and Richie had a crush on each other. And there are a lot of little examples you could point to. I'm going to um, quote from them dot us just a little list that they give the idea that ritchie secretly harbors feelings for eddie is not exclusive to chapter two but only the closest readers of king's novels are likely to have noticed any homoerotic subtext the evidence is debatable but it's there One of the most interesting details is not something scary at all, but the chemistry Eddie holds with Richie Tozier, fellow member of the Losers Club. Between the two of them is something different and sweet that pops up all throughout the book. In the novel, Richie repeatedly calls Eddie cute, and while Eddie brushes him off, there's a suggestion that the attraction could be mutual. At one point, he asks Richie for a lick of his rocket pop, despite his debilitating fear of germs. When adult Eddie dies, Richie has the hardest time leaving his body behind, with Richie kissing him on the cheek before they go. There's some little moments. And as this writer points out, in a book that's 1,100 pages long, it's easy to see why little details like that would be lost on someone who wasn't looking for it or who it didn't necessarily strike because it seemed like unimportant details. But I think for people who are looking for that representation, it's kind of sticks out like a sore thumb.
1: Well, I was going to say, and I feel like in this movie version, it was handled in a relatively similarly subtle way. I, you know what I mean? It was it was never spoken. It was never I agree. overly like no one got on a soapbox. You know, I mean, nothing annoys me more in a movie when it gets preachy. Whether even if I completely agree with what they're preaching about, I just it drives me crazy when it's just ham fisted. And this movie, it wasn't that way. It was it felt organic to the character. There were hints and allusions that honestly, I for for my tastes, I felt like it was a interesting counterpoint to what happens at the beginning of the film with Adrian Mel, which is also from the book. So
2: I felt- 100%. For me, that was, okay. Now that's that's the other big controversy. So let me just state this really quick. So a lot of people in the LGBTQ community disagreed with you saying that this version doesn't go far enough Mm -hmm. for this day and age. Basically the concept being that this is from the hollywood reporter it says the murky revelation about bill Hader's character feels like a letdown considering the film's updated timeline the idea being why is he still closeted at the end of the book i
1: thought that too actually
2: wouldn't the more reasonable character arc see him coming out to the losers club yes i would only say i mean there are reasons why a person wouldn't come out um, that we could get into but i think just looking at this from a story perspective I think it makes sense. It takes the events of this film for this character to get where he gets, and that that and that would be a much bigger change to the story. That then I could see why people would say, "Well, they really forced that in there." And I don't. I feel like what is in there now for me did not feel forced.
1: I will say I actually agree with them in the sense that one of the thoughts I had after the movie is the thinking, and this goes back to my earlier issue with part one or chapter one with the whole timeline shift. I thought, in I'm not saying there wouldn't be people in, in the closet in 2019, of course. So again, I don't. It wouldn't have wanted to get preachy, but I do think that if this movie takes place in the '80s, as the book originally does, the the, the second half takes place in the '80s, and '85, it rings a lot more true to me that he would have been in the closet. Not to say that he wouldn't be. I just felt like that was one thing that popped in my head. Like, would he? Though, I mean. I, I don't
2: know well, if here's you're the mean, thing with the very controversial Adrian Mellon scene, you see why someone might be closeted in a town like Derry. It's not like a really safe place to be open.
1: Sure. In, in dairy for sure. Yes.
2: I mean, that's horror. And that's the horror that these characters are living with is in, in a lot of ways, just, you know, as people have said that it's humans who are the monsters in this tale, uh, you know, mm-hmm. not, not exclusively, but that, that is a thing. Um, I think there's this additional element of our shame being actually the true horror in our lives. the things that we haven't dealt with are the things that really torture us, you know, and that is, that's how what Pennywise uses to torture these characters are these bits of themselves that they haven't been able to process or haven't dealt with. So just really quickly, again, we reached out to LGBT folks in our community and just said, Hey, we would love to hear your thoughts on this. And we got a few responses. This has only been since last night. But um, the Boogie brand, he says, although the opening wasn't perfect and I would have liked to have seen or heard mention of Adrian's boyfriend again, it does put a brief spotlight on LGBTQ bullying, hate crimes. And that's a small step in the right direction for awareness and inclusion. Boogie brand also says Richie's unrequited love for Eddie was bittersweet and heartbreaking. Their carved initials killed me, but it was understated. a great emotional payoff for Richie's character and arc would have seen him coming out to members of the losers club. Johnny Larkin, again, from the Screaming Queens Horror Podcast, he says, we're publishing our take on this today as well. And I will put a link to their podcast in the show notes for this episode if you want to hear a queer take on that scene.
1: Yeah, I want to hear that.
2: He said, uh, as a queer horror fan, I applaud the handling of Richie, and I think the gay bashing is awful, offensive, and upsetting, just as a gay bashing on screen should be. Mm -hmm. I'm glad it was there and it was handled that way ryan l terry says although the opening scene is in the book i don't think it worked well cinematically it feels slapped on the front to show that this is a progressive movie because this should disgust you as a checkbox and richie's subplot is never fully developed thus feels disjointed Gerald DeMonte says adrian's beating in imax was brutal richie's dirty little secret didn't understand why he couldn't tell the losers especially since they're in modern times but we've come to find out about several hollywood stars that are living secret lives and i don't think pennywise is anti queer um that's another whole side controversy because i guess pennywise like the bobaduck had been kind of adopted as like an online meme gay icon and so i think this was additionally upsetting to folks for that reason and there were some trigger warnings going out and i understand the trigger warnings honestly like anyone who is the target of or has suffered any kind of targeted violence, I can see why something like this could be upsetting to someone who fears that something like this might happen to them or has had a similar experience. I definitely am not begrudging anyone who you know puts a trigger warning out for this film, but I think to dismiss it outrightly um, doesn't make sense to me. Xena says, not all of us can tell our friends for various reasons. It did seem like a secret he could trust the losers with, but I'm sure he had his reasons for not doing it yet. That's fair. Xena further says, it was hard to watch Adrian's situation and it hurt to see what happened, but it's reality. And what is more horrific than that reality? These crimes happen and we shouldn't shy away from showing them, even if they are painful to behold. This is a horror movie after all. Mm -hmm. Richie's story was one so many of us know so well using humor to deflect and hide growing up living as an adult and staying hidden feeling an intense fear of being outed before you're ready and honestly even falling for your best friend the representation was appreciated and the parallel of adrian's scene in the beginning with richie's at the end made me feel something with it and Derry, richie wouldn't have been safe before he would have ended up like adrian if he had dared to be out but after the defeat of it, Richie not only can conquer his own fear, but he can live safely as the man he truly is. I also love the way Bill Hader doesn't play Richie as a gay caricature. He simply plays him as a person with complexities like the rest of the losers. Mm-hmm. So thank you to Zena for that very thoughtful
1: response. That, and I will say, he deserves the Academy Award nomination, if for no other reason than that moment when he yells out, Yippee Kaye, mother, and then boom, and his whole body just does that like <laughs> goes like, that was amazing that was so I, good i really just honestly i want to own this movie just so i could play that part on a loop because yeah that, really it was fa- fantastic it was so great that is the internet meme waiting to uh, happen isn't for it sure. though that's it, a Jeff waiting to happen for it's sure so it's so you gotta have the sound though he <laughs> <laughs> just his whole body just the way he just the, i mean the physical i always wonder was that cgi i mean the way his body just <laughs> Yeah. Oh, he absolutely. also
2: legitimately made me cry in the movie too. I mean, yeah, I thought he I, just did a great yes, job and
1: laughed out loud multiple times yes, as well. Yes, for sure. And I will say this, I, as you know, as a, as a person who, to your point, I, you know, I, have not experienced that. I don't know what it's like, but I personally felt watching this movie more of a deep and profound love without anything ever really being said between, from or from Richie to Eddie, and maybe even the other way. Who knows? Yeah. Than I did with Bev and Ben, which obviously is the more obvious, overt attraction situation. So right. um, that's just how I took it.
2: And well, wh- one of our listeners pointed out that also. I mean, we're we're so upset about the Adrian Mellon abuse scene, you know, and despite the fact that that pays off, in my opinion, pretty well in the film. But we don't talk as much about, you know, Bev's mm-hmm. spousal abuse scene, which has no reason,
1: in my opinion, for being in there like that. That's in there because it's part of her character. I think it's just to show. Well, yeah, it's part of her character. It's just to show that her, you know, she's she's never been able to break the cycle that her father yeah. abused. But I'm just her. saying
2: that doesn't that one doesn't pay off. To the same extent, I think it says something societally that I just haven't heard people say, well, that scene doesn't
1: pay off. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of talk about. Well, and how about just the way Mike is treated in chapter one? I mean, there's a definitely I mean, they never, they never use the N word, but there's a whole implication with uh, Henry Bowers, which we don't have time to get into that because I that, talk about a waste. Like, because from what I remember from the, I haven't, I've got the book on audiobook. I've gotten like halfway through it. So I still have some ways to go. It's like 45 hours long. But yeah, but the, I, I, I'm, I don't remember if it's addressed to the same degree. It probably is more explicit to racism, especially since it was the 50s. Uh, right. But I felt like it's even in the 80s, like it, the implication would have you know was that they were targeting him not just because he was the quote-unquote weird outsider homeschool kid it's because he was black and so there was that whole element and that there's a consistent theme throughout the whole thing that you know a lot of the dairy residents are pretty horrible people right that opening scene in chapter two definitely had a purpose and a place from my point of view i did also
2: want to mention there is a scene in the book with patrick hotstetter and henry bowers where they have a Gay interaction and you know that hasn't been in the movie but I, I don't think this is a foreign concept to Stephen King to put that into no. the, to the story and
1: honestly I'm glad they didn't because then you would have had a situation where it would have been the perception might have been right that you had what happened to Adrian Mellon and then you have what is a pretty vile character. Being portrayed a certain way, you see what I mean. Like I think, I think having a character like Richie, who is like a really likable, interesting, you know, type of person, having him be a gay character is a much more positive representation right. than if Henry Bowers had been.
2: But again, with Henry Bowers, you can see why he would bully someone like Richie if he feared that in himself. Sure. It makes perfect sense. We didn't have time to talk about it, but man, I really enjoyed adult Henry Bowers in this film and the return of Patrick
1: Hotstetter. I thought that was an awesome little buddy story that I'd have liked to see more of those two guys together. I, I actually was going to say that's my big problem with it, is I don't think we got very much. It just felt like yeah. they were there purely to have a couple of moments. There was that one key surprise where he shoves the knife through Eddie's face. For a second, I thought, did that really happen? <laughs> just the way the whole thing played out uh but i i think that as i recall from the 90s version i think i liked how bowers was handled in that a little bit more like i just felt like he was oh i like this way in my way defense better. i haven't seen that in many years so it's been a long time um, but i i think that it just felt a little bit like there should have been more to it maybe i don't know i it didn't quite work for me i think to the degree it worked for you but um, yeah. And maybe, you know, who knows, we could do maybe a little more spoiler talk uh, once Dave's seen it and we could do yeah. do a little more there.
2: One more listener response here from Maurice Jones. He says, although the excessive use of CGI was nauseating, it chapter two was an exciting ride that stood up for gay riots, which perfectly bothered homophobic people in my theater. It was inspired. The casting was on point and it was better than it. Chapter one, nine out of ten. There's a bunch more, but we don't have to, I know you don't have time, so. Okay.
1: I mean, it's up to you if you want to do like, I mean, after, well, I guess you can't. Well,
2: go ahead and say what you were going to say.
1: Well, I was going to ask you what your feelings were on um, Baby Pennywise at the very, very end. The
2: I mean, I it was weird, <laughs> <laughs> but, and again, I don't think they've cracked the
1: code on how to convey end this movie and yeah. this story. Because there were elements, I, I the arachnid, form of him with the head on it actually worked for me way better than the original did. Um, yeah. So I, didn't it reminded me of Moana a little
2: bit too much, but I think <laughs> you know, it's still, it's a vast improvement. All you have to do to appreciate this film is watch the 1990 version. Yes, honestly,
1: the second half of that, especially, especially the last part of the second. Half. You're just like, Oh, okay. Yeah, this is better. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Cause it is. I mean, that part of, but there were just so many moments like that, that I just, I wasn't sure how to feel about it. Cause part of me wanted to laugh and which I don't think was the intended yeah. response. Well, it really reminds me of Pennywise
2: shrinking to go down into the sewer in the sure. 90 version. And I think that is what the visual they were going for. So that I liked remembering that and seeing that kind of juxtaposition of my mind. I, I, I think Andy Muschietti really um, did a good job of a, taking the best of what the 1990 version had to offer yeah. and getting it in this movie as well.
0: Yeah.
2: I've also seen a few people talk about, I just want to say I found the Richie story extremely touching. I thought it was the best part of the film. Yep, I think it I added a huge amount of heart to the movie. And I think the ending was like tearjerker mm-hmm. dusty in the theater moment when he carves his name. Yes. It recarves his initials uh, with Eddie's at uh, the kissing bridge which by the way, I've seen a lot of people online say when he carved it in the tree, but it was on the bridge, right? That's where yes, it was the bridge. Yep. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. Cause I've seen multiple people say no, it was the, bridge. he carved it in a tree. I'm like, huh, that's no,
1: not- it was a bridge.
2: <laughs> I haven't only seen it once, but yeah, the kissing bridge, that's where, you know, that scene goes down in the book. And you know, when they do the Ben Hanscom scene there in it, chapter one, I, that felt like a reference to, Adrian Mellon scene mm-hmm. even though you know the stomach carving is also in the book but mm-hmm. setting it there at the uh, Kissing Bridge I thought that was all we were going to get of Adrian Mellon so I was really enthused to see Adrian Mellon get the full treatment mm-hmm. in at chapter 2
1: do you, are you out of time? Uh, pretty much but uh, do you want to just let the listeners know where they can find you online? find
2: me online at Icarus Arts which is the name of my production company I'm on Letterboxd Instagram Twitter Get in touch and look forward to what we've got brewing here on Horror Movie Podcast. We've got some exciting stuff coming up for October. And I just can't wait. I want to give a shout out to digital artist Big J Brook. That's Joshua Bellis um, from Ohio. He's an awesome graphic designer and he has done some amazing designs for us that you can find in the HMP shop. Some really fun stuff. He did a pet cemetery t-shirts with the Micmac Burial Ground and Church of the Cat. He did um, a Godzilla-inspired HMP logo for stickers as well as Stephen King's The Dead Zone that says HMP Dead Serious instead of The Dead Zone. Just some really cool ideas. He came up with a Gilman Joel logo which hopefully we'll see in the store in the future. So we wanted to thank him. You can find him on Twitter at BigJBrook or at his website, joshuabellis.com and head on over to the HMP store and check out some of his work. You can find that and all of our other HMP designs at
1: horrormoviepodcast.com slash store. Go check them out. And I can also be found at Universal Monsters cast and of course, Retro Movie Geek, where we cover movies that are 20 years old or older. And we're basically three-man children. So join us each week as we do that. We love reading and responding to your comments, so we hope you'll get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. It's a wonderful group of people. You can leave a comment on the show notes for this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com, where you can find this and all of our past episodes. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at horrormoviecast. If you'd like to support Horror Movie Podcast, go to StitcherPremium.com and use promo code HMP. To get a free month of Stitcher Premium for 30 days, go to StitcherPremium.com and use promo code HMP. You can get your listener-designed HMP t-shirts at HorrorMoviePodcast.com slash store. You can also become a patron of Movie Podcast Network for only $2.50, which will give you access to special features episodes at patreon.com slash moviepodcastnetwork. We want to thank singer-songwriter Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. We also want to thank composer Kagan Breitenbach for his arrangement and orchestration of Fred's original theme, which opens the show. You can find more of Kagan's work at kaganbreitenbach.com. That's it for this episode. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you for joining us for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. That in torment, nice and slow. Don't run a turn around, and Pennywise will know. He'll make you wish that you were dead, he'll make it hard to cope. He'll make you wish that you were dead and hanging by a rope. We've all looked his eyes. Look around they call, Pennywise. That's catch
2: bite of pride. Look around they call, Pennywise. Now, when I read these first couple comments, people are going to say, why would you engage with someone like this? (laughs) First of all, this person is a listener to the show. And so I, I do feel like I owe it to them to at least respond. But secondly, you know, I think what's wrong with our country right now, speaking as a American citizen is there's just so much division. And I think It would be really easy to have a flame battle on social media. That's what social media is for after all. But I think it's more useful to engage and try to understand where someone else is coming from. And I think that played out to some positive effect in this interaction. You can be the judge of that, but I just want to say what I'm about to read right now is not going to make everyone happy. And I understand that. And I just kind of wanted to let people know how, broad, the reaction to this film is and particularly the gay coded scenes. So here we go. This is from Benny George. He says, why do they f- need gay characters? What more do they want than to have one of the main characters come out as gay for f- sake? Have you not read the book? Stories never change, but politics do don't mix them up. Okay. So I said, well, I, I'm definitely not saying characters needed to be gay, but people are upset saying. He's just very closeted for 2019. Having read the book, I thought it was organic to the movie. Mm-hmm. Then he says, what's the point, though? Well, and I said, in this case, they live in a town where people get killed for being gay. That's horror. And I think that speaks to the type of tale this is in the first place. And then further, just, you know, what's the point of any character trait? Why has Ben fat? Why does he have a crush on Bev? Why is Bev abused? You know, they sure. think these are things to round out a character mm-hmm. and give them interesting character arcs, not to mention gay people exist. And even, you know, that's just a reality of the world, even if it's only been recently safe to be out.
1: Well, and I think, you know, to bring up the, that idea of real life horror too, the the fact that, I mean, that opening scene is, is upsetting as the Georgie scene is in chapter one. I mean, it's brutal, it's ugly, and it does set up what a horrible town this is and, and the, it, how it just seems to have this insidious, like a vibe. They bring up the whole virus idea. It's just like it's in the townspeople and it just does. And, and that's alluded to quite a bit in both, obviously the book it, but in um, I've been taking me forever to get through it, but I'm almost there. Uh, 11, 63. He makes a pass through dairy in his time travel. Uh, the main character does. And dairy is just as it's, it's it takes place just right after the events of uh, right. the, the original it. And, It is, you can, you know, in everything he's seeing and and taking part in, you get that sense that so many people there (laughs) are just um, infected with whatever this is, and it's hate. It's hate, it's fear, which leads to hate. And that's what Pennywise is.
2: Right. Well, then he goes on to say some other things, but we're running out of time, so I'm gonna skip ahead.
1: Are you, you talking, know, are, what, Josh, are, are, you talk, yeah. are you talking to me right now? Yeah. Uh, alligator almost bit us. <laughs> I, I don't.
2: Re- don't you remember you told the story on the <laughs> crawl episode about an
1: alligator jumping out of the water? Oh, I, well, I, well, yeah, I mean, to be, okay, you said walking through a parking lot. So I like in my head, I'm visualizing my children. I walking through a, a, a park. I think he's in a parking lot. <laughs> like. I don't think I said that. <laughs>
3: oh, yeah, the park. I remember that. I remember that. Yes, the park where we we're I on the path and
1: the, in the bull alligator. So yes.
2: here's an example. Joel made up a story in the
1: moment because he thought it sounded good. <laughs> no, what Joel did is Joel was afraid that's what everyone was going to think because I swear to God, I thought he said parking lot. I'm like, we were at the mall? And there was, I mean, Florida's bad with gators, but for the love of God. <laughs> no, yes, we were at a park. We were walking down a path and I remember the bull alligator. Yes, I got it now. I'm with you. Okay, back to it. <laughs> okay.
2: What's her name? Um, the director who did *The Love Witch*. Did you ever see her film that she made before that? I'm blanking on what that one was called. But that that film kept coming to mind. *The Love Witch*, director's first film. Um, *Society* kept coming to mind.
1: Oh, *Society*, and, yeah.
2: And Jennifer's body kept coming to mind. Those were the three movies that were really. <laughs> on my mind the whole time well real quick on, um, on the on
1: the love witch that is uh the director is anna biller and yes is it viva that's her feature she did before the love witch
0: Can, uh,
2: she I did some shorts
1: been, uh, yeah she did some shorts before that but viva was her the movie she did before love witch
2: yeah i guess that was it I did, that doesn't sound right but <laughs> i believe you <laughs> maybe i'm just thinking of the love witch is there a, is there like a big scene with a bunch of yeah, there's a scene where there's like a bunch of people naked in a backyard doing some kind of
3: satanic, right? I think I've seen The Love Witch, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm, uh, is that the one that sort of had that, that sort of 70s vibe? Yes, yes,
1: it did. I know that about it. Yes.
3: Yeah, yeah. I did see it too. I don't recall that scene though. Maybe, but, um, I mean, maybe it was there, maybe it was there and I'm just not, rem- uh, um, uh, it's been years since I've seen it. So
2: And also that scene from Race with the Devil that's in the burbs that we were talking about. Dave a few episodes ago. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That of reminded me of that as well. Right. Uh, that's all talking about personal sure. things that I think that, I, for me, having never had that experience, I don't feel like I could speak to the specifics of why someone would choose to come out of the sure. closet or not. But I think from a storytelling perspective, it's easy to justify that a town like Derry could generate you know, a person feeling that way
1: about themselves. I guess I just come back to, they forgot about Derry, right? That's the whole point. By the time they're adults, until that phone call hits, they have forgotten about Derry. It's in the book that way. They have pretty much, it's been blocked well, out. Well, this
2: murder, the Adrian Mellon scene happens in the same timeline they're in. So it's not like if this was something that happened in Derry in the 80s. This is still
1: happening currently. Sure, but Richie as a character, wouldn't, he, at the end, did they ever allude to him knowing about Adrian Mellon? I don't think they ever, like, you. Know, I mean, I don't think, what I'm getting at is, yes, I agree with you. A town like Derry would cause that kind of repression, but he's forgotten Derry. He's he's not, it's not part of his. Well, that, that doesn't make sense to me, but I think that's, I think
2: the film doesn't make sense to me at that point either, honestly. Okay. Like, to the level that they forget
1: about Derry is just kind of stupid, in my opinion. <laughs> and it's in the book like that. I mean, the book, they have literally just all, oh, but it's other than just fleeting memories. They have no connection yeah It
2: made more sense to me as a kid watching the 1990 version but now as an adult i just don't believe that you would have you could forget that much about unless there's a weird supernatural element at play which there clearly is intended to be but that's a stupid element i guess i would just say (laughs) it's a weird narrative decision Mm -hmm. and also the fact that they lose their scars at the end of the movie that was also i thought really stupid like it's just that's not that's a dumb lesson, I think. I don't think you should lose your scars no, you in should, order I to be re, You should remember
1: them. Hence the whole point, yeah. right? They forgot everything else that you needed to remember. Come by, say hi if you see me, and uh, I'd love to hang out and chat. It'd be awesome.
2: Is it okay if I give out your phone number for the... Which number? <laughs> Not for that. <laughs> for the... Um... Campfire Tales? Yeah.
1: Uh, yes. Please do, Josh. Please give <laughs> out that number. <laughs> it's, just, it's just completely completely shorn. My head looks like a shorn scrotum is what I'm trying to say, people. Um <laughs> <laughs> Whoa.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Unnecessary changes, ridiculous bloated climax. But I really liked. No. Oh,
0: my phone just died. Oh, no. <laughs> wah, 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 wah.